We recorded a whole bunch and got them ready before that, I left. That's actually why, because we pre-recorded the intro to the last show. Did you remember and record the outros? I did. <laughs> Good, because <laughs> I haven't listened to the podcast. Yeah. So yeah. I have been, I've been in New Zealand, and that is what this show is going to be all about. Kind of a little bit, in fact, very little about the ex- my experience there, but mainly an interview with... You do some, talk about it. A little bit, yeah. but it's mainly an interview with Joseph Peters from Hard Yards Hunting, who I spent most of my time with. Uh, when I was up in the mountains of New Zealand. So you're going to find out all about him and his thinking and his ethos and his ethics and get a bit of a feel for the lay of the land in New Zealand, which was a a very, very interesting experience. Huge array of topics are covered today. Like Byron said, mainly to do with New Zealand. So a lot of um, hunting ethic, hunting ethics? Yeah, hunting ethics, as well as explaining what heli hunting is, uh, public lands, land use, uh, what's going on in New Zealand in terms of wildlife management or, or, lack, or of lack of management. It'll be quite interesting for our, especially our North American listeners in the conversations about public lands because you guys have your public lands and it's very topical right now in North America. And New Zealand also have public lands, but it's a very different landscape. Yeah, it would have been a good one to have Tyler on. It would have been actually, yeah, to get him to ask the questions or... Uh, yeah, well, maybe we'll have to try and hook that up. Get, we'll need to get Joseph over to Scotland so he can yeah, ex- see what it's like here. <laughs> exactly. Now, this is uh, quite... It's a bloody good podcast. It's, uh, I think... I, I looked at the runtime, and I think it's about two hours, 20 minutes. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I hope, well, I hope is you it got... two hours, 20 minutes? I think it's oh, about wow. that, yeah. Um, Hopefully, especially with it, the intro and outro, it will be about that. So I hope you've got a long car journey, which I'm sure many of you do, driving to the game fair. Yes, because I imagine most people live within. Well, I say most people. Most people go to the show probably live within an hour-ish radius. I would say the majority of people, and then there'll be other people coming from much further away. And we're, we're talking about specifically the game fair that's this weekend, which is the one at uh, the Skin Palace Game Fair with the GWCT. Yes, and we've been giving away tickets for that for the last well away, last three shows. Away six tickets. Six tickets. As well as other things that we've been giving away mm. as well. So, um, what I was going to say before we got on to uh, and moved away from what we were talking about today is that this show was actually recorded in two halves, as you will hear, and the reason being that we recorded this in a mountain hut up uh, one of the valleys, right towards the end of my sort of trip, and we were both basically falling asleep at one point <laughs> while we were answering, while I was asking questions, while Joseph was answering. So I thought, right, let's call it a day here. That was about an hour in, and then we picked it up again the morning after. Um, but you, you will hear that as you listen through. It was a, a really cool environment to record a podcast in. The weather was a bit crap, to be fair, compared to the previous week, which had been absolutely awesome for us. I couldn't have asked for better weather for filming and photography. Um but we were up the top of this valley and basically couldn't really see anything because the cloud was so low. Uh, but we made the most of it and recorded a podcast in the heart of it as it was. So if you hear any sort of 
creaking and knocks and stuff, it's because we were in this really old cabin you, and it was windy outside. You're, you'll start to see pictures of from New Zealand coming up. I've put two up on Instagram so far. Um, there is That's mainly because I think there's about a thousand, so I've only managed to edit. I think I'm on 20. 20 of a thousand right now um but with uh, picture editing uh especially if uh if you do do any editing yourself as soon as i start sorting out the profiles and kind of the the lighting in you know you might get a set of pictures that are 50 pictures from the same scene but they're different things it means that i can actually put the color profiles and that, that i want across 50 and then the process starts speeding up the more i edit from that project um so uh, give me another hundred pictures, and that uh, should start speeding up. And there will be there will be a film to come out as well, but we will keep you updated about that. So keep your eye on our social media. We're going to be uploading, uh, I think, nearly all of our films to Instagram TV because they are now. If you don't know what Instagram TV is, then where have you been? Uh, where have you been? <laughs> it's happened yeah. while I've been in New Zealand. <laughs> uh, Byron didn't even know about it. Um, it basically, they are now allowing you to upload images the images uh videos up to one hour long um they say it has to be vertical but that's ridiculous because nobody films vertically really um so it was because they wanted to encourage filmmakers to film vertically but i mean unless you're shooting everything so that means everything you but that means that they would want you to shoot everything on its side the thing is is you don't view life Vertically, <laughs> so I don't really understand it at all. But all you got to do is turn your phone around. Turn so. your phone around. So when you when we put up a picture, just do the really hard task of putting your phone the on film. the side, the, uh, and then when we put up a film, put up the film, yeah. Then uh, turn your phone on the side, and then you can view it perfectly. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think it will actually be a good thing because, um, especially if you're wanting to get away from Facebook, which we eventually one day hopefully can get away from Facebook. It, Instagram it will, is the goal. Uh, Instagram will cover everything that we want to do, which is put up pictures and put up film without the rest without of the clutter. Without all the garbage, yeah. So it's it's actually going there. And, you know, they're owned by the same company, so I'm just hoping that they uh, they don't screw up Instagram. Hopefully. I can't imagine anybody's going to sit for an hour and watch something on Instagram. No, I... I Most of our films are a lot shorter than that. They're between sort of five and 12 minutes. I can't can't imagine it, but we're still going to put them up anyway, just in case you do, because you might have a... Spare hour. Spare hour. (laughs) (laughs) While you surf on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, So that is that, and I'll give you more snippets about New Zealand in podcasts coming up. I won't... uh, talk too much about it now just because this podcast is so long as it is anyway uh we have a few things to mention though uh, before we really get into it and the first of which is that it is now possible to pre-order modern huntsman volume 2 yes on the website well it is on the website uh i think the date we were given was roughly i think it was september Please don't quote me on that. It is on the website. It's uh, this but, year. But these so. dates are rough. So those are the dates that we were given from the United States. And uh, I think, I believe everything is still on schedule. So it's just about printing it and getting it over. And uh, as people know that have listened to the show, um, it takes a wee while to get stuff over here. Uh, incidentally, the people that have recently pre-ordered Modern Huntsman, it has all arrived in the country as of today yes. so, so it's, it's, i don't it, think it'll it, go out it's, on Monday. it's actually quite bad timing because we are going to the game fair so shipping we yeah, have like baron said is probably going to be delayed until the monday uh, but rest assured your copy is in the country and you should have it within a week yeah which is good news and in volume two as we mentioned before 
uh, we are going to be in it. And one of the stories uh, from us is going to be from my trip to New Zealand. So you will be able to see some of the pictures and all the printed glory that is Modern Huntsman when Volume 2 comes out. We have a number of copies that will be available for sale at the Game Fair, which is this weekend. So if you want to get your hands on it, make sure you get to the, the stall ASAP. I think we've got 50 copies. 50 copies. Um, and if that's anything, judging by the Northern Shooting Show, they won't be around. I don't think they'll the be there weekend. by Sunday. <laughs> by <laughs> so Sunday. If um, you go in this weekend, come to the tent. We are A14. And if you can't um, if you can't make it to the game fair, then put in an order now yeah. <laughs> during this weekend, and it, your copy will be put aside from the copies that are available oh, yeah. for sale. Because if you don't do that, the likelihood is after this weekend, unless you've pre-ordered you'll be waiting for the next shipment, which yeah. could be in another few weeks. <laughs> we have another prize with this uh, podcast. So all, all the ticket giveaways for the Game Fair this weekend are done and dusted. Everybody has received their tickets. And the competition that we are running for this podcast is to win a reloading die. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you probably don't reload your own ammunition. Uh, if it's not something you've done before, you should try it out, because... The best that I can give you for a comparison in terms of satisfaction is if you fish and you tie your own flies, it's kind of the same thing. If you like to hunt and you shoot full bore rifles so you can re- and you reload, to some extent it gives you the same kind of satisfaction. Uh, so we are giving away a Hornady full-length reloading die. I want to say to you that it'll be of a calibre of your choice, and that will be true if they have the calibre. So if it's a pretty standard caliber like 308 or 243 or 223 I'm sure they'll have it. I don't have it here at the office and I will but I will put in a request for it. Um so if you were looking for a new full length reloading die now is your opportunity. And to enter we're going to make it a, a social media affair. As usual we'll stick I'll stick up a picture of my reloading bench or some of my reloading kit that I've got. And uh, I think we'll just make it a very simple case of tagging a friend below. But if you do not do the Instagram and you do not do the Facebook, then just email the show because it'll be completely randomly selected in any case. Uh, For the people that have bought the podcast stickers over the last however many months, uh, we will be having our eyes looking for them at the show. And if we spot any podcast stickers around... Then uh, we've got Smith Optics shooting glasses. Glasses, and if whoever we'll put it up on there, we'll we'll announce it on the podcast, and uh, we'll we'll get the registration, the make and model, and then I don't know, we'll do it so we're not reading out the registration on. on well, not the full registration. The full registration. So if it's like a Toyota Hilux blue, and it was, starts with an H, yeah, starts with this, then you need to give us the rest of the registration, and then and then that's uh, a good idea. Yeah. So uh, make sure you've got your sticker. If you've bought one and you haven't put it in the car yet, and you're going to the show this weekend, make sure you get it up. Yeah, uh, and if you don't have one, buy one at the show. Yeah. You'll, you'll find, we'll have them available. We, we have lots of eyes walking around the show, so there's still a chance if you buy one, you, you could still be spotted. <laughs> yeah. when, you know now we're going to have to walk around that car park that's got like 20,000 cars in it and look for... Yeah, Ho- hopefully. Hopefully it won't be too hard to see them. Hopefully not. The, you know, the biggest problem with the car stickers is me and Byron both have tinted cars. Mm. Um, and you can't actually see the car sticker on a car. The only vehicle I've got that you can see it in is the Defender. The Defender. It's really, really annoying. I really like having the tinted windows on a vehicle because for security, for, for security and also it's a bit cooler in the back. Mm. Um, but it's a real pain for car stickers. 
Yeah, I don't think there's any way that we can get around that unless you had a sticker that on, you the put outside, on the outside. Yeah, but most stickers are designed to go on the inside. And so. also, I don't really like pu- putting a sticker. Oh, you could put it on the window because I was going to say I don't really like putting it on, no, the, not paint, on the, car, the paintwork on the unless it's one of the the proper ones. Now, the last thing that I wanted to bring up uh, was the fact that we will be once again trying to raise money for good causes. Uh, some of you will remember that we raised money for the chimpanzee sanctuary, um, the Lawiri chimpanzee sanctuary. I'm trying to think, was it this year or last year? It was last year. Last year, uh, which was fantastically successful, and we had a lot of donations from you great people. Uh, and we don't know what we want to raise money for yet. So the first question to all the listeners is, tell us of a great cause. Yeah. Uh, we'll probably put something up on social asking the same question, but feel free to contact us in all the million ways that there are to contact us um via the social platforms and give us your thoughts or yeah. send us an email and we'll it's, probably put it up to it's public it's entirely up to you and if they're yeah we'll, what we'll do is we'll look at them and kind of top three we'll put up to a vote and you guys decide and we'll we'll raise money for it it can even be uh, one we've already done if you, if you think that you want to do the chimpanzees again yep do it again uh, but please give us a suggestion uh, because it's uh, you're going to be helping us. <laughs> yes, and then in the next, in the coming weeks, once we've decided, uh, we've actually already got a whole bunch of stuff that was was given to us that we're going to raffle off. So that'll be part of the way that we're going to raise money. We've got some uh, knives. We have some signed Donny Vincent DVDs that he very kindly uh, sent us, and a whole heap of other stuff. It can be anything from any part of the world, uh, but we'll look into it and you know make sure it's a, a worthy, worthy cause. A worthy cause. And that was it. That was the last thing I wanted to say. Was that Are you done, Dusterdale? I think so. I think so. The weather has been glorious in the UK. Actually, it's been too good because I still haven't got, got my bees because the weather's been too hot to ship them, which has been really annoying. They're down. They're, they're in England, waiting, waiting. Next week, it's meant to be a bit cooler. My hives are in position. And I'm waiting for my bees, so... You, I'm sure you will give everybody an update of your bees arriving. Yeah, I will. Trust once, me, once, gonna they get be, here. once they're here, you're going to be... We're in, not going to be able to hear anything in, else apart from bees Inundated and with um, pictures of bees. <laughs> and that is it. Enjoy this show from the mountains of New Zealand. Okay, I've got my headlamp on underneath my headset. <clears throat> Just hanging over the top of the bunk. Yeah, I don't. I don't need it on. It's uh, kind of mood lighting and the the steam from your <laughs> steam from your tea. <laughs> Joseph, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I don't think we could be more into the wilderness really <laughs> than where we are. We are at the end of. I, I've kind of lost track of the days now. I've been with you for seven, eight days, something like that. Mm, maybe, maybe nine. Yeah, maybe nine. Uh, and we are currently sitting in one of the many uh, mountain huts that you have in New Zealand. I'm on the other side of the world from where I normally record this podcast in Scotland. I'm in New Zealand with Joseph, which if you're a regular podcast listener, you will know that I was heading over here. Um, we've had an incredible you know, incredible week. We've actually had fantastic weather as well. And we are in the uh, Mount Cook Reserve uh, National, National Park. Park. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to work out where to start. We've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Literally, with our legs, we've covered a lot of ground, and we've covered a lot of ground while we've been talking up in the mountains over the last few days. It's been fascinating having a chance to learn about New Zealand and 
be up in the mountains hunting the animals that you've got, I, su- I suppose a good place to start would just be the the trip that we've just been on the so the, the wilderness hunt. Where did you take me, and why did you take me there? I mean, it, it was awesome, and we'll kind of we'll kind of go through the days a little bit to to give people an insight into what we were doing. Yeah, so we headed into the edge of the Landsborough Valley. Um, there's there's a number of different areas you can hunt in New Zealand, and you know our main focus for this was tar and chamois. So we wanted to be in the South Island in the Southern Alps within the tar range. And we were pretty blessed to have a, a good weather forecast, about as good as it could get. So if the weather's good, it's it's best to head west, I think. Um, the West Coast offers a pretty unique experience where you can hunt tar and chamois, or chamois, as they're also called, um, within the same area, pretty close proximity, as we found out. Um, and it's pretty cool to be able to see both species together and it's a pretty unique environment where we can go from being within the bush line to to a proper alpine environment in a really short space it's a really compressed um, ecosystem and pretty good mixture of species we also got to see a lot of a lot of bird life which was good yeah some pretty rare bird life actually <coughs> yep yeah we got to see some cool critters some south island kaka and some bush wrens and a few other critters that not many people get to see, um, which is which is a great experience to add into it as well. So I kind of chose that area because we had a good weather forecast and, and we could have a chance at getting both animals, uh, which we did, and we had a we had a pretty good run, I think. Yeah, we did. So how do your how do your wilderness hunts normally work? If you're if you're a client coming here, what can they they expect? I mean, I've obviously. Um, been lucky enough to, to sample that now, but for for someone who's thinking of coming to New Zealand and particularly want that experience, and, and there'll be a lot, a lot of our listeners will be looking at the pictures that we're going to be putting up in the coming weeks and seeing that. What can they expect, and how, how, what form does it normally take? So our wilderness hunts are usually a week to sort of ten or twelve days in length, and we're focused on either tar chamois or both species um, depending on how much time we have and what the weather's doing and these are pretty similar hunts I think compared to sheep and mountain goat hunts you know in North America and you know ibex or or sheep hunts in Asia Um, so it's a true wilderness hunt and we generally use a mixture of helicopter access and proper backpack style access depending on people's fitness and the weather and the conditions available to us Um, so like the trip we did we take a short helicopter flight into our sort of base camp area where we set up our camp which is normally just tents Um, sometimes we will stay in in a hut or a cabin Um, but we normally stay in tent camps because we can get better hunting access I think out of tents and then we're just hunting on foot from there. It's just spot and stalk. You're covering the miles. Um, and we might move our camp around with us, um, depending on people's fitness and, and their abilities and the type of terrain we're in. Or we might just hunt from that one base camp, uh, depending on what what the conditions are doing, what kind of animals we're seeing. It is it is a very physical way to hunt. Um, I've done a 
bit of preparation prior to coming here, not as much as I would have liked. Uh, but it is, you know, it is right up there as the most physical hunts th- that I've done in in my life. What would you say to people who who are coming with that in mind in terms of how they need to just get their sort of mindset and preparation ready so they can get the most enjoyment out of it? Because there's nothing worse than when you're hanging out and you're trying to enjoy a hunt. You know, it, it is always going to be hard, I think, no matter what you've prepared for. But there are some things you can do just to get ready. Yeah, the the best thing you can do is just try and have a high base level fitness. You know, like us, we're lucky. Younger guys, we can just kind of turn up and make it happen and grind it out and and get through the get through the trip. Um, but as you get older, and you know, a lot of stresses in life and everything like that add up, and generally your base level fitness is going to drop off. Um, so the easiest thing, you know, it's hard to get fit. Yeah, it is. But it's a lot easier to stay fit. Um, so I think, you know, gym work and things like that are good, but I think just basic walking is the best thing you can do because that's what you're going to be doing on the hill. And just with a, with a light pack, you know. You're not going to be doing bicep curls on the hill. No, no, we don't see, (laughs) we don't see many curl racks on the hill and we don't see many stair machines and we we don't see many treadmills. Um, I think the best training you can do is just walking off trail you know get out in the bush and just walk around with a a light pack you don't want a real heavy pack something like 10 kilos like 20 pounds 25 pounds Um, because the reality is most of the hunting we do is just day hunting so you're just carrying your day gear you're not carrying unless you want to be a cameraman and carry around (laughs) a hundred different lenses um we're not carrying cough cough (laughs) we're not carrying a huge amount of gear um so you don't need to be hercules you just need a good base level fitness, look after your back, look after your knees. Um, and obviously it's hard for people that live in, in areas of the world where they don't have access to the hills or the mountains. Um, for those guys, you know, you, your stair machines, or well, walking up and down actual stairs are about all you can do. Um, but anything's better than nothing. Just trying to be as fit as you can. And mental preparation's a big thing, um, which... You just kind of have to be prepared to suffer a little bit, I think. Um, like on our trip, for example, like the weather was beautiful, but because we were walking through snow, we both ended up with wet boots, which both ended up fairly frozen at times. Um, and things like that is pretty hard to train for. You just mm. kind of have to suck it up and you deal can't, with it. You can't let it get you down. No, no. When you when you're on the hill and you you know and you fall over and you're wet and cold, you've got two options you you can either sit down and cry or you can laugh about it and just get on with the job and having a good positive attitude and you know a little bit of hardship kind of adds to the experience if you've I got so. if you've got the right attitude um i think at the end of the day it ends up kind of meaning more if you've <laughs> it's almost the more you suffer the more it seems to mean it's a weird uh weird parallel that but it, it is true i think yeah yeah, yeah, a little bit of pain never hurt anyone. <laughs> it's one of those things, you know. We're not out there to to make your life miserable. Um, you know, that's not our job. We're trying to look after you as hunters. We're not trying to beat you into the ground. Um, but a little bit of preparation, you know, before the hunt can really make your life a lot easier. It's it's no fun for anyone if you turn up and you're completely unprepared and you're just having a bad time. Um, 
so that is kind of why we offer different hunts in New Zealand. Um, so we kind of try to tail, tailor the package to people. You know, if you're not going to be 110%, don't book on a wilderness hunt. We'll do a private land hunt. We've got other options. There's no point in in putting yourself into that environment if you're not prepared for it mentally or physically. It, it doesn't. There's no fun for anyone. Yeah. Um, We're going to get into uh, a little bit about the types of hunting that there are here in New Zealand, but just to sort of carry uh, carrying this through the the actual hunting experience and preparation for it. I've uh, it's been interesting to chat with you over the last week about the kinds of kit that work and, and don't work in this kind of environment. And one of the things which even you had said that when you first uh, first saw them, you're like, why the hell do you need that? But it's awesome and I'm I'm going to get someone to get home is some down pants just to throw over. Yeah. But just running through your kind of kit list, um, what do people need to think about? Because ultimately, I mean, they need to bring kind of you know gear with them to be ready for a hunt like we've done. You, know, you need a sorry if you you came completely unprepared in terms of gear, you could be in some. You, well, you're certainly going to be uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The big thing in New Zealand is it's a really changeable environment. Um, the weather we've seen's been pretty good, but in a typical day, you can wake up and sunshine, and it could be raining, and it could be hailing, and it could be snowing, and it could be sunshine again, all within like Scotland, all within a day. Yep. Um, so you want to be able to change your layers. And get in and out of warm gear and your wet weather gear pretty easily and efficiently. Um, New Zealand's not super cold. Uh, you know, we don't have crazy cold temperatures, but it is wet. Um, so a lot of people think, you know, oh, it's not going to be that cold, it's not going to be that bad. But when it's three degrees and you're wet, it's colder than when it's minus 10. Because once it gets to a certain temperature, you know, all the moisture dries up and it's a lot easier to keep warm. Whereas we're... Quite often we end up wet, doesn't matter what we do. Like on our hunt, we didn't have any rain, but we ended up wet. Just, you just know, we, moving through snow. Yeah, moving through snow or sweat and, and whatever. You end up wet one way or another. Um, so having gear that dries out reasonably quickly um, and functions when wet is good. I think that is key. A lot of people don't consider that enough, I don't think, is how quickly does your gear dry. Yeah. Because at some point it's going to get wet. Yeah, especially your rain gear, you want to have proper lightweight hard shell, you know, none of those soft face rain gear. I don't I don't really have a place for that in the mountains because once it gets wet, you have a raincoat that gets wet on day one, seven days later it's still wet. You're not gonna you're not gonna dry that jacket. Can't shake out. it out. No. No. So having a lighter weight jacket that's a proper hard shell is gonna dry out pretty quickly. Um and the same with your pants. Rain pants are a pretty important thing, I think, because um, we're often walking through vegetation that's kind of knee to waist high. So gaiters don't really help you much, and having good, durable rain pants that you can take on and off. You need full zippers, um, so you can take them on and off. That makes a huge difference to your comfort, because wet boots and wet feet are pretty miserable, um, as we found out, and especially... Especially with sub-zero temperatures in the mornings and the evenings. Um, it's quite important to uh, just labour the point about the full zips, though, because I've had a lot of pairs of rain pants over the years, and the ones that you've got are the first ones that I've seen, that, uh, although, I mean, there are others that exist, but the first ones that I've had a look at properly myself, where you can leave your boots and everything on and not struggle to get them around the heel of your boot, which I do 
I have done many times with brain pants that I've got where they have a long zip, but they only come up to your knee. And so you still got to drag your foot through it. Whereas those ones you can put on standing up. Yeah. Which is, which is really great. Yeah. Yeah. They're completely impractical almost if they don't have full zips and, and the ventilation as well. You can unzip them from the top down Yeah, and vent them out when you're walking because, you know, we use rain pants. I use rain pants nearly every day, you know, even just for wind um, and just as a little extra layer. They don't really have any insulation in them, but they still stop the wind and keep you that much warmer when you stop. You know, you might stop for half an hour, stop for an hour to glass, and you can just whip them out, put them on, take them off, put them back in your bag when you start moving again. Uh, it's a pretty simple thing to to have in your bag, but it it makes a big difference to your comfort in the hills. Mm. And what about uh, sort of your, your mid layers? Because I've been wearing like a synthetic puffy jacket that I um, of no particular brand, but uh, I had that in Nepal and I've had it now here as well, and I found that quite quite good because it packs down fairly tight, and I can stack it away in my um, in my rucksack and then put it on quite easily um, if it's getting a bit cold. Yeah, we're not. It's not super cold here, and our hunting's usually pretty active, so you don't need massive insulation layers you know you can normally get away with a good base layer maybe one mid layer and then most lightweight um, insulation layers on the market work well here you don't need the real heavy super warm layers not Uh, the michelin man puffy ones no you don't really need that i'm wearing one right now (laughs) (laughs) it is cold in the hut because it's cold and i'm skinny (laughs) but generally you don't need these massive insulation layers like you see people wearing you know north america and europe you guys get temperatures that are a lot colder than here um so you can get away with fairly light layers but you want to be able to take them on and off and layer accordingly because you soon warm up when you start moving um in terms of synthetic versus down i don't know i'm still kind of on the fence and the same with base layers i grew up on a merino farm and have you know, from a small child, had it beaten into me that you've got to wear wool, um, and I pretty much have always worn wool next to skin up until last year. I got um, one of Politex Polygrid fleeces um, as a base layer, which I've been using. I think I'm wearing it right now. We wore that for a, I wore that for a whole trip. I think I've got it on now. Yeah, I've got it on now, and I've worn that you know a whole week or ten day trips without ever taking it off. And I do think. Some of the newer synthetics are are probably better than Merino in terms of wicking moisture and drying faster. Um, the odour thing's probably up for debate. I don't I don't think there's much in it. Um, Durability-wise, it's hard to say. It depends how you're using it. In terms of insulation, sleeping bags, I think down is king. You, you're the one you've got right now is down. Yeah, we're both sitting in our sleeping bags because it's so freaking cold. Yeah, I, I, and mine, mine's down as well. I've got a rab down. I think I think down's king. You can generally keep your sleeping bag dry or dryish. Um, I have spent a bit of time with a wet down bag, but um, it's hard to say. The synthetics I haven't had a lot to do with, but I've been doing a bit of research into them at the moment, and from what I've found. The very best synthetics on the market are still only about half the insulation value of like 800 or 850 loft down. So your high level down, you can get away with half the weight in terms of insulation for the synthetics. 
Um, when they get wet, it's obviously a different a different thing, um, but you've got to really think about how often are you actually getting wet. Can you keep your insulation dry? Um, so things like with your sleeping bag, you can look at lightweight bivy sacks. Um, like my guide Tim, he more or less always sleeps in his sleeping bag in a bivy sack, you know, inside a tent or whatever. Does he just do uh, that just to make sure it doesn't get wet? Yeah. So things like in your tent when you're moving around, condensation dripping on your yeah. sleeping bag, and especially, you know, the, most of us, the end of your sleeping bag, your head and your toes always end up rubbing against the tent and always end up wet. So you can get away with, you know, if you look at your sleeping bag plus a bivy bag, it's still going to be lighter than a, than a down bag, uh, than a synthetic bag sure. of the same um, temperature rating. I think anyway. That's That's where I'm sitting at the moment. I might change my mind. Um, the synthetics, there's a few new synthetics coming out at the moment, um, but yeah, I think I just need to spend a bit more time playing with them. We were talking about, um, and it's particularly pertinent when you uh, end up have, when you end up successfully killing something, then you've got to go and pack the meat out, uh, about just the weight of packs and how to minimize that whole system. What's your sort of mindset on it? Um, because... You know, we were carrying just pretty average packs when we were when we were walking around. Not not super light, but uh, not extremely heavy either. But when you when you got to start packing stuff out, it does start to mount up a bit. Yeah, you, your best way to cut weights probably not take two or three cameras and a whole of lenses. <laughs> uh, another dig. <laughs> you, you can save you can save a lot of weight there. Um, you know, there's a lot of lightweight and ultra light gear on the market. But at the end of the day, if you want a lighter pack, you've just got to take less stuff, you know. And it's hard, you know, as a guide, we end up, we have to have the spear this and a spear that when something breaks and we've got to have, you know, the big first aid kit and all the extra things that you've forgotten, I've got to have. Um, so we kind of end up by default as a, as a pack pony. Um, that's something we kind of have to deal with, but... It depends a lot on what kind of conditions you're in, and it takes a while to work out what you can get away with, um, you know, in terms of do I really need this? You know, is this going to keep me warm and dry? Is this food? <laughs> you know, is this an essential item? And it's like, well, no. Well, then get rid of it, you know. If you don't actually need it. You know, there's a lot of small things out there, like bipods, for example, are one thing that I think you can get away with. Um, you can shoot off your pack, you can shoot off your tripod if you've got a spotting scope. Um, I'm probably not the best person to talk to at the moment about lightweight packs. <laughs> like I'm packing around a 95mm spotting scope all the time. A few years ago I was really going down the lightweight aisle and and you know cutting weight on everything um well you're cutting your toothbrush in half like yeah yep. you, you did, did you got, do that i've got it cut in half at the moment i do um generally the problem with going lightweight with gear is you sacrifice a lot for durability mm. um and it depends on how much you're using it you know as guides we're we're kind of on the highest end of use and abuse um, so I've gear, seen that the way you yeah. use a rifle as a walking stick. Yeah, so gear wears out pretty quickly for us. So a lot of that lightweight stuff isn't cost effective. Cost effective for us to use. You're just better off to have less, less things in your bag. It takes a while, doesn't it? Yeah, to yeah. to get a system. 
Yep, and everyone's different. You know, everyone has different comfort levels on things that they think are worth having or not. You know, most guys I see are packing, you know, things like pillows. You know, blow up pillow like. Do you do you need one of those? You uh, know, no stuff. Stuff um, some extra clothes in the in the mommy hood of your sleeping yeah, bag. Yeah, I've never used a pillow. You, you know, you're going to have a, a down jacket or whatever that you can use as a pillow or a dry bag or something you can fill with extra pair of socks. Dry bag's a good one actually. I, I've done that quite a bit. Those I've got quite a few light dry bags, and I just ram some extra clothes in there and fold it over, and there you go, pillow job yep. done. Yeah, things like that where you can just you can cut cut corners and. Try to think about the things you're carrying in your pack. Does it have two uses or three uses? You know, you want to be able to have everything in your bag that you can use for two or three different things. Because if it's only got one use, you know, unless you're using it all the time for that particular thing, it's it's hardly worth carrying around. Mm. Um, and what about uh, on the sort of, not not specifically the rifle, but in terms of how you need to come uh, prepared in terms of caliber choice, I would imagine, as with a lot of parts of the world, quite a lot of people probably come a bit overgunned. Yeah. For for what they're hunting. Yep. Yeah. I'm I'm a small caliber guy. I don't like recoil much, and I think you can you can get away with you know little guns if you can shoot. Um, and the most important thing at the end of the day is shot placement and bullet construction. You know, things like your energy and, and, you know, the velocity and all those things, they they come secondary um, to where you can hit an animal. You don't need a three three eight wind mag to come hunting. No. No, I think there's a big misconception, I think anyway, with mountain hunting. The little bit I've seen internationally and, and in New Zealand here is people kind of put mountain hunting and long-range shooting in the same boat, hmm. whereas it's not necessarily the case. Um you know, like, more like the tail we shot was 150 yards. Um, was the chamois was it was 160, something like yeah, that. Yeah, it wasn't um, all that far. And most of the game that we're shooting with my clients, and most of the game I've shot myself, is well under 300 yards, and most of it's under 200 yards. Um, and part of that is because we do spend some more time getting closer, but that usually pays off. Um, especially in terms of terrain analysis as we found out things aren't quite as they seem yeah. um you know you can you can look at a spot and go oh there's a tar or whatever we'll be able to get over there and you can shoot them at 500 yards and then you walk over there and go oh <laughs> i need uh, to be a mountain oh, to it's get too up steep or oh, i lost them in that in the cliffs or you know and that happens a lot especially in new zealand with tar there's a lot of animals that shot and lost and just because people can't get to them. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah yeah i think some of it's poor choices and some of it's inexperience and, and it's easy to do. It's easy to shoot, especially with modern equipment, it's easy to shoot out four or five hundred yards um, yeah. or even further if you've got a good setup. But, you know, is that really what you want to be doing? Um, at the end of the day, when you shoot that animal, you've still got to walk over there and get them. Yeah. So what do you gain? Yeah. You know, you, there's, there's definitely situations where you can't get closer, but usually... You can get within 350 yards, 300 yards, which at those kind of ranges, you know, pretty much all the normal calibers you see out there floating around, like a 7 mil 8 or 308, a 243 that we've been using, they all get the job done. You don't need, you know, this 6.555, things like that, that are mild calibers, easy to shoot. 
you can get away with a lighter gun because you can actually shoot it. Yeah. Um, and you can shoot uphill, downhill, steep angles, offhand, off your knees. Those are the things that are important, I think. Um, one, one of the things that we were discussing uh, was the need to be comfortable in shooting in different positions fairly swiftly. Yeah. Yeah, it's one thing lying and shooting off a bipod day in, day out, and shooting very well out to whatever range. But the reality is, as I've seen here, especially when you're in some of those steep gullies, is a nice shot like that's probably not going to present itself. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that there's tied in with, I think, bigger calibers. Um, I've seen a lot of hunters from, from all over the world, and there's, there is guys out there that can pick up a three three eight and shoot it with a smile on their face, but the rest of us can't. You know, there's a small percentage of shooters that can shoot big guns easily. Um, you know, increased noise, increased recoil, all these things add up. And when you're trying to shoot a 45-degree angle uphill off your knees, it all adds up into a miss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and like, like where you shot your tar, for example, we are in a, in a steep sort of position. We were shooting in a small gap through the trees into a slip. It was only 150 yards, but you had pretty limited options on how you could shoot. Yeah. And and someone that's reasonably experienced, like it was good for me to watch you, you just sat down and shoot across your knees. You didn't even think about it. You weren't messing around there going, oh, how am I going to do this? Because you knew how to shoot field positions. And I think shooting off your off your knees, like sitting on your ass shooting off your knees is is the most versatile and useful position for hunting. Uh, nearly all the game animals I've shot are shooting like that. And you can shoot really well like that. You should practice shooting groups. You should be able to shoot out to 300 yards or across your knees like that. Yeah, um, yeah uh, something that uh, I often write about actually in, in some of the articles in the magazines is practice on the range as you would hunt in the field. Because beyond checking to make sure that your reload is shooting correct and your rifle is zeroed, lying down prone at 100 metres all comfortable on a sandbag is of basically no use to you for practising a hunting situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, things like... I've seen guys... Like those lead sleds, you know, like those kind of setups. like Lead sleds? Yeah, you know those... Have you seen a lead sled? It's like this... Nah. It's like this is it an armrest thing. Yeah, it's like this ridiculous thing that you set your gun in and then you shoot off it. Oh, that thing! Yeah, lead yeah, sled yeah. because yeah. you fill it up with lead because your gun kicks so much you can't <laughs> shoot it. So you shoot it out of this thing, and yeah. it's like, well, if you can't happily shoot your gun, why do you have it? Yeah, what, you know, if you can't go out there and put a hundred rounds through your gun just for fun, then you shouldn't be shooting it. You know, you should be able to, like my gun, I can shoot left-handed. Hmm. You should be able to shoot left-handed why not yeah. you know I've been there's positions where you be be in that position on the hill where that might be the only shot you've got yeah and you should be able to take that shot if if you practice um, yeah I think once once you've got your gun sighted in and I've written about this a little bit but I think small game shooting like rabbit shooting is probably the best thing you can do with your big gun and you know it seems simple you think, oh, I can shoot half-inch groups at 100 yards. Well, get out there, you should be able to shoot a rabbit at 200 yards all day long. But when Not you, always that easy. When you actually try and do it, it's not that easy. You'd think it would be easy. 
And at the end of the day, you know, if you're shooting a rabbit or you're shooting a deer or a tar or whatever, you should still be trying to hit the same size target. Yeah. It doesn't matter how big that animal is. You're still trying to hit a little a little dot on them, pick a spot. Um, so I think once you've got your gun sorted, got it sighted in, get out there and try and shoot as many small game or as many targets as you can in sort of awkward positions. Um, and force yourself. Yeah. Yep. I like... One of the things I've done a little bit, which is good fun, is get like old milk bottles or something, fill them up with water, and just chuck them round at, you know, start at maybe 20 yards and work your way out to a couple of hundred yards. Don't range how far they are, just chuck them around and just shoot them as fast as you can yeah. from standing or sitting or whatever. Um, don't have a bipod, don't have a sandbag because, you know, you want to be prepared to shoot in the real world um, where you don't have all that stuff helping you. I've done the same thing with uh, small bags of flour, because yeah. then you end up with a great strike yeah. when you're successful. And you, you'd think, actually, if you hit a bag of flour with a full-bore rifle, that it would blow the whole bag apart, but it doesn't. You could normally get about four shots out of a normal bag of flour um, before it's completely disintegrated. But yeah, doing that kind of stuff, if it's, I mean, the problem is, I think, for a lot of people, is that they don't necessarily have the, um, the flexibility to go to a range where they can go and do that. And I, I'm lucky in that I do have access to ground that I can go and shoot out to 400, 500 meters even just for for practice. Because if you can hone your skills in awkward positions out to ranges like that, then it makes taking closer, much more um, relatable shots in the field almost second nature. Yeah. 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 I, I think, yeah, the range things... There's a lot of people restricted. The same with the fitness, you're restricted by what you can do. Um, we're lucky here. I don't think I've ever actually been to a a rifle range. No. Ever. <laughs> you know, you just get a cardboard box and sight in on that and then away you go. Um, so we're pretty lucky here, especially with smaller, what I call like medium game, um, like goats are a good example, and wallabies, where you can get out and, and shoot quite a lot of animals in a short space of time. In the field, you know, in uphill, downhill, you know, awkward angles. Uh, when you're sidling around a face, you know, you can't lie down when you're sidling, you know, on a steep face. So you've got to shoot sitting. Um, that there's that there's good practice if you've got it available. Getting to the the hunting in New Zealand and, and what is available, I think a good place to start to try and explain that to our listeners is uh, somewhat how you started to explain it to me, which was a, a bit of a, a background check on the species that are here and how they, got, how they got here and how that's sort of changed over time. Yeah, so New Zealand... But that could take about three hours yeah, doing that. Yeah, you can write a book on it. The kind of shortened version of it. There's been a few written. Um, so New Zealand's a pretty new landmass in terms of being inhabited by people. Um, so the white man turned up here pretty late on the piece. And when we turned up, there's pretty much only birds here. Um, all our native mammals are either seals, whales, dolphins, and we do have um, a couple of species of bats. Um, but we had no large land mammals at all in New Zealand. Um, so New Zealand was colonised by mainly Englishmen and Scotsmen. Um, Hence some of the names. <laughs> yep, 
and when we turned up, we thought, oh, we'll be quite good to have a few deer around to hunt, or we could have a pig to eat. Um, so the first animals that were brought over here with the sailors were were pigs and goats, which were let go, you know, through most of the Pacific Islands, you have pigs and goats, which were let go as a kind of safety net for when you get shipwrecked, um, and they spread pretty quickly. And then through the mid-1800s, we had a number of what were called acclimatisation societies set up, and these were designed to acclimatise new species, both plants and animals, into New Zealand, um, and make a lot of New Zealand look like England. <laughs> so we've got a number of English trees, you know, around the towns, and, and they started off with red deer. They were our first game animal brought into the country, and there was a number of liberations all throughout the country, uh, from Scottish stock and, and a number of English game parks. And they did pretty well, and then we kind of kept adding to the piece. Um, so through the late 1800s into the early 1900s, we ended up with seven species of deer here, um, and tar and chamois and feral goats, feral sheep and feral pigs. And we've got wallabies, and we've got rabbits and hares as well to add to the mix. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. So I'm going to let you carry on your your, your story uh, of, the, of the history, but for people back in the UK, one of the things I've been absolutely fascinated with is that they've only got brown hair here, but the brown hair live in ranges that we would normally see mountain hair at home. It's quite incredible to see how high they've been. But anyway, sorry, carry on, Joseph. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, you do see a lot of hares when you're up up tar hunting they get right up and amongst it even in the middle of winter like we've yeah like we're seeing they're not afraid of the snow um so some of these species didn't do too well like the moose has have kind of fizzled out um and a few other things like axis or the chittle deer they didn't do too well um, but in general most of the species did pretty well um, they took to our habitat pretty well it's a mild climate um, we don't have really harsh winters, and when these animals were first let go, they've got no predators, a pretty much unlimited food source. Um, so the trophies that were produced during the early 1900s were pretty impressive. And the first period of hunting was a pretty managed system. Um, so a lot of these species, when they first let them go, all the hunting was closed. They just let them do their thing until the numbers started to breed up. And then we had seasons and tag restrictions and and these were bought generally by wealthy hunters um, both from within New Zealand and international we had we had people traveling to New Zealand to hunt right in in the early 1900s uh, mainly for our red stags because we had at the time some of the best red stags in the world um, especially from our Scottish bloodlines we had still hill country style stags but on steroids, um, so you know they're still the really nice style. These nice big twelves and nice big fourteens, but just massive dimensions compared to what they. It's amazing how in their homeland how the different habitat because they're we're the same deer. They, yep. they came from what we see and I see very close to my house all the time, but they just went on to produce colossal heads. Yeah, yeah. Just mainly, changing habitat and food source, which, mainly nutrition mm. um, for the Scottish heads. And and that was all good and well, and everyone thought this is great. Um, until sort of the 1930s, um, around that period, we started to have a few problems. The deer numbers, mainly with red deer, they were the first to kind of really get out of hand, um, mainly because they did more liberations of them, and they started 
releasing red deer before any of the other species, so they they kind of bred up the fastest. Um, and our government decided that, oh, maybe there's too many of these deer and we don't like them so much after all, so they lifted protection off them and started to put a bit of pressure on them. Um, was that the start of the the sort of the professional deer colours, or did that come later? Um, that was sort of the very very beginning of it. The Second World War kind of interrupted things a little bit, um, and pretty much every man that could hunt was was trying to shoot Germans. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine our game numbers increased again during yeah. that period. And then in the 1950s is when the government really sort of set things up with with what is referred to as deer colours, um, proper professional shooters. And they actually went through there. an academy, didn't they? Yeah, they had they had training systems for them, and then these guys were out there, you know, they were full-blown, like a small army of professional hunters. They weren't just randoms running around in the bush shooting deer. They, they were a bit better than that. Um, these were pretty highly skilled guys. They might have had some basic gear, but they were... They were pretty skilled with it. They knew how to shoot their three O's, <laughs> and these guys were doing doing some pretty big effort, just killing deer. You know, they were just out there shooting thousands. You know, some guys had tallies of ten thousand deer or more, um, all on foot, just out there doing the hard yards, shooting them, and it was working. Um, but as you've seen, like our terrain is is pretty hard to move around in, and we do have big areas of wilderness. Um, so foot hunting has its limitations and we started to see through the 60s and the 70s some of these guys were thinking man I'm shooting 10,000 deer and I'm just letting them rot on the hill there's there's got to be a better way to do this you know there's got to be some more value in it so they started to look into the meat market um, and we started to see some of these guys doing commercial venison recovery and velvet as well and that was still mainly on foot, go out, shoot your deer, chuck it on your back, walk to town, put it in the chiller, get your money, and away you go again. But, you know, again, just to the terrain, it's it's a pretty limiting factor on what you can do. You just can't physically go out and shoot 20 deer in a day and carry them all out. It's not possible. So in the 1970s, when helicopters became sort of available, um, we started to see a change in the in the hunting style. And these guys started the birth of the of the venison sort of wars they called it the helicopter wars um, through the seventies and the early eighties we saw a massive increase in helicopter operators based around venison recovery. Um, so these guys who were out there just shooting deer for the meat market from the helicopter, flying around, papple your deer, whip the guts out of them, chuck them in the chiller, make your fortune. Um, there was some guys made a lot of money doing it. There was quite a few guys died doing it. It was it's quite it's quite dangerous work operating helicopters in those kind of environments. Yeah, yeah, and especially then health and safety and and osh and high vis vests and things like that weren't invented. Mm. <laughs> um, so guys were just winging it and learning on the job. Um, and some of them some of them learnt the hard way, which is is pretty sad. You know, there was, there was guys putting in. Massive hours and huge effort, and you know, guys make mistakes. And when you make mistakes in helicopters, it's not real good. Um, and that period kind of more or less ended um, the government's operations on deer control because they soon realised that helicopters were, you know, the answer to controlling deer. You know, obviously you're not going to kill them all that living in the bush, but a lot of areas. Um, 
where we've got beach forest, which is our predominant forest here, there's not actually a hell of a lot to eat within the beach forest itself. So a lot of those deer have to come out into the tops, into the tussock or into the riverbeds um, to feed um, so that is where the helicopters can pick them off, especially in the South Island out in the tussock country. They've more or less you know, exterminated the deer in a lot of areas through commercial hunting. You know, areas like where we were driving in today, you know, these valleys historically have had quite a lot of deer in them. We didn't see any come in. Um, and none. <laughs> you won't see many in here now because they've pretty much killed them all. Um, just because of the type of terrain, you know, you, you can cover it all in a helicopter pretty easily and they, they can't hide so well, so so they can have a huge impact. Um, and and during that period through the 70s and the 80s, they also did get into the tar a little bit as well. We had commercial meat recovery on tar and chamois, um, and they had massive impacts on those species as well because they're predominantly alpine animals. They live out in the open country and, and they can't... <laughs> They can't get away from a helicopter. Their main defence back then is to run uphill. That's their main defence from predators, and you can't outrun a helicopter running uphill. <laughs> so they had massive impacts on our on our tar and our chamois and our deer. And we saw through the 1990s um, pretty average hunting, I would have thought. Um, you know, this was all sort of before my time. I wasn't really around hunting then, but the... The populations at the moment have have started to recover. At the moment, we're probably seeing the best hunting on public land than we've seen since probably the 50s or the 60s, I would say, in terms of animal numbers, access, and trophy potential. Um, especially our tar herds, very good at the moment. Our red stags, up until sort of the last couple of years, and still now, there's still some still some really good stags coming out of the wilderness areas and public land um, but they are again under quite a bit of pressure from commercial hunters um, because the venison price in the last couple of seasons has has ticked back up again and these operators are out there again so what's now called warrow wild animal recovery you know venison hunting has has always existed since the 1970s and never really stopped it's just um, whether it's economical to do it, whether the price of venison's high enough to, to run a helicopter and run a crew to get out there and shoot deer, um, it has a huge impact on what what is available on our public land in terms of trophy potential and animal numbers to hunt. Hmm. Your The public land's an interesting one because you, you do have private land here as well. Yep. Um, but your public land, you know, some of it's almost more public than others because you do actually have like ballot systems which I didn't know about you which you were telling me about for some blocks describe that public land system to me uh, for our listeners because and especially for our American listeners because they especially right now are talking about public land a lot because they uh, in many instances feel that it's sort of coming under threat maybe for the first time in their lifetime where they are maybe seeing uh, areas of public land which potentially might not be public anymore. So it's very much in their mindsets. How does the public land in New Zealand work? Um, I'm, I'm not an expert on it, but we've we've got quite a lot of public land, I think, um, especially in the South Island, like the West Coast, where we were, this, you know, nearly the whole West Coast is public land. It's all just pure wilderness, native bush. Um, and this public land is kind of divided up into we have national parks and wilderness areas which have 
little restrictions on different things you can do within them. Um, you know, like no, no fires or no dogs or no vehicle access and, and things like that. And then within the public land, most of it is just free access. You do what you want, um, more or less. Some areas will be divided up into hunting blocks or, or like units, as you want to call them, um, and they'll be balloted or a draw system um, to get into areas that will be determined to have special interest or special trophy potential or a special species, um, like our wapiti, for example, our elk herd, um, is all within a balloted system um, to get access to them. Um, and we've seen, like in my lifetime, we've seen an increase in public land. Um, so there's a lot of big high country stations or farms, we call them, like we drove past one just today that used to be probably nearly 10 times the size of what it is now and they were taken on on as leasehold it was called you know a 100 year lease from the government for that land and they did a, a review on that land usage um, a few years ago and a lot of that land was determined to be um, not worth farming or uneconomical to farm or you know you might have a hundred thousand acres but 65,000 acres of it are just rocks so <laughs> so the government yeah. um, took quite a bit of that land back and converted it back to public land um, which has been good in terms of access you know we've got a lot of public land but our biggest problem here is is how that public land's being managed um, our department of conservation manages this land on a on a pretty thin budget most of the time they don't have the funding sources um, like we see in America where it's a user-pay system where hunters and other public land users are, are paying directly into the usage of that land. Um, whereas in New Zealand, we've got a lot of public land, but we don't have a lot of ma- uh, a lot of money to manage it properly. So what does it uh, cost you to, to, as a Kiwi, and you want to use public land, you want to, you want to go out into the tops and enjoy some hunting, what do you give back in return for that? privilege what do we give back yeah i mean because uh, in the states there's like we've discussed there are there are ways that money feeds its way back to their uh game wildlife departments yeah so apart from our just what we pay with our taxes we don't have any direct fees um you know if you're using a hut we pay and some of our tracks some of our great walks now do have fees on them um but you know, just to get out there and wander around on public land, it, it doesn't cost you anything, um, which which is good, which is good in some ways, but when we start having uh, massive increases in, in tourists like we're seeing at the moment, tourists are starting to outnumber New Zealand residents, and things like our national park, like Mount Cook National Park here, is, is putting under a lot of strain because there's um, very little money to manage an area that's having you know, a couple of million tourists coming through it every year, things like rubbish disposal and effluent and and basic infrastructure, roads and tracks is is very hard to manage when you've when you're not making any money out of it. It's crazy how many people you have coming to New Zealand. It's about yeah. the same as your entire population yep. in a year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and especially like towns where I live, we've got about fifteen hundred people living there and we had I think the last um, season they they said about one and a half million people coming through the town, so it's it's pretty hard to imagine how how the infrastructure works. You know how how do the ratepayers pay for one and a half million people to 
to come through that town. Um, obviously, a lot of us are making money out of it. You know, there's a lot of tourist operators like myself. That's our livelihood is tourism. Um, but there's also a lot of tourists that are coming here on a bit of a shoestring budget and contributing, I think, contributing very little, um, but using quite a lot of our facilities. Um, like freedom camping is a big issue at the moment and things like that are getting harder and harder to manage as we're getting a bigger increase in population. In terms of the hunting, there are there are some conflicts which arise around uh, the, the for, for want of a, a better expression, the management of the game that's here and the access of the hunting. Be that from the the native population, from from the, the the people who live here, you guys, and the foreign hunters coming here, what is that dynamic like, and how is how has that changed? Um, management management's a loose term in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, that was why I was trying to think of some other way of of phrasing it, but I couldn't. Um, you know, management around the world seen as you know game management or whatever is. You know, you've got seasons, you've got restrictions, you've got limits, you've got this and that. You guys are a little bit different. In the UK, you don't necessarily have have public land hunting as such. It's it's all pretty tied up in, in managed systems. Um, here's kind of the other end of the spectrum, like in our public land. Our government still officially has um, most of our game animals, as we call them, and on a pest status. And so they're still pretty low on the list in terms of, of looking after them properly, um, which is causing a lot of problems with with the average New Zealand hunter. Um, although our government might might decide that tar and red deer are a pest, not many hunters have that view. You know, there's not many people out there just thinking, oh, I'm going to kill these deer because I don't want them here. Um, they've, they've tried to kill them for a long time. Um, they are part of our ecosystem now. How, how many deer we should have, how many tar we should have within the country is still up to debate. Um, I think there needs to be a bit more research into what's an acceptable level. But the biggest problem we have on our public land is there's never been a long-term management system. Um, and so our hunting on public land can go through massive um, sort of bust and boom cycles in terms of population numbers and trophy potential. And a lot of that is well beyond our control. Things like the price of venison, you know, has a huge impact on how many deer there are going to be. And that can change. You know, you open up a new market into China and all of a sudden all the deer are dead <laughs> because they're all put in the freezer. Um, so a lot of those things the average Joe Bloggs hunter has has no control over. But it does have a huge impact on, on his hunting. I mean, do you think that um, the sort of unrestricted... Foreign hunters being able to come in has uh, had a detrimental impact to some of the species. I mean, you would think that that, that might be playing a role. Yeah, in some places. Um, most... And by that, maybe sort of a lack of uh, a lack of respect because they're seen as pest species anyway. So, in terms of how people tackle the hunting that they're actually doing, yeah, yes. and how they conduct themselves. <clears throat> Yeah, New Zealand's kind of a a test for people's ethical standards, I think, um, because you can more or less do what you want when you come here in terms of 
you know, we offer guided hunts, helicopter hunting, high fence hunting, you know, any type of hunting you can dream about, you can do it here. Um, and I think a lot of people forget about their ethical standards or forget about the way they treat game animals when they come to New Zealand. Um, would would we treat our animals the same if we had bighorn sheep here? Even if they were introduced, I, I think they would be treated differently. Um, I think a lot of people don't relate well to to an animal like a tar. It's seen as a goat, and no, it's just a goat. We'll just shoot them. Um, and one of the biggest problems we have on public land is is our, our game animals are so skewed in terms of population dynamics. Um, like our tar are a really good example where a lot of areas we have massive female populations with, with a really, really low um, age class and a really, really low male age class, um, which is purely overhunting by hunters. Um, you know, we don't need to have 500 nanny tar in a valley with 10 bulls. <laughs> you you want to have a good age class and bulls with a low nanny number um, to reduce environmental impact. That comes and, down to education, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And a sort of a change in the ethical standards of, of people who are utilising the resource, which is your game animals. Yeah, trying to make the right decisions, I think. Um, you know, the animals like tar and chamois to a, to an extent as well are really good examples of animals that are mainly seen as trophies you know trophy hunting doesn't have a doesn't have a good sort of image um but you know let's be honest like we were out there hunting for a week and we shot two animals we we took the usable meat we could off them um but the reality was we weren't going to go out there and and shoot a hive of animals just to fill our freezer because the effort required was huge was pretty huge um you know it took us a whole extra day just to get the meat off that tar um, but we were looking for, and this, you could get into a whole debate about what is a trophy and define that. But we were looking for a particularly old, for, with respect to the, the tar, we were looking for a particularly old bull. We looked at a lot of tar. Yep. 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 And, you know, I think if you're going to go to that huge effort, most people kind of want something a bit extra to it. You know, it adds to the experience. We spend a lot more time there looking for different animals. Um, and I think if if a few more of us had that kind of attitude towards our species and and tried to bring our age class a bit better and tried to balance our populations out, we would see both a reduced environmental impact in terms of the population. There might actually be less animals, but we've got a higher chance of finding a, a mature male because we've got more males than we do females, for example. Whereas in most places we go, the population is skewed so far the other way because people are out there just smacking all the males they see going, oh, they're just a pest, we'll just shoot them all and measure them on the ground. And you've you've seen the the aftermath of that before while you've been asking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite regularly. Um, and like we've seen today in the hut book. Yeah. Um, people shooting, you know, 20 bulls and more than that in, in one trip. Um, and, and gleefully writing about it. Yeah, and and what yeah. do they really achieve? Do they? I don't know. Maybe they have a bit of fun. But if if you want to shoot a whole heap of critters, you're far better off to try and shoot some females. Or well, that's where the population control comes. Yeah, from. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And some of our animals need it, and some don't. 
um, like chamois, for example, are, are not in high densities anywhere in the country. They're not an animal that needs to be controlled. I don't think in any way. Just the nature of the species. They don't they don't breed up in in high density areas, and they don't you don't see them in groups like we see we saw the tar. No, no, no and they're not destructive in their in their in their habits. Um, they're a pretty low impact animal, and they spread out over a big area. So there's no need to go out there and just shoot them for the sake of it. You know. What is the the situation with what you guys term heli hunting? I mean, it's not a it's not a phrase that most people will have even heard of back back in the UK. I don't think it. I don't think it exists really anywhere else. No, as far as I know. No, it's. It, Oh, they do a bit in Texas at the moment. Oh, okay, well, yeah, I think there's there's not much. <laughs> I think everything happens in Texas to, so to some extent, doesn't it? I think I think New Zealand can claim the invention of heli hunting. Um, so, heli hunting's a bit of a vague, open term. Some people will call what we did heli hunting, yeah, because we used a helicopter to access the mountains, um, which I don't really call helicopter hunting. You know, if you take a super cub into the mountains to hunt sheep, is that plane hunting? Not really, you know. You, you drive a truck to the end of the road where you're truck hunting. Yeah, <laughs> you know you've got. We still, a, did, we still did a shit ton of walking when got, we got you, up there. You've got to access a mountain somehow. Um, yeah. So, in terms of what what people generally call heli hunting, we have a couple of different forms. We have like wild animal recovery. So these are guys out there shooting deer mainly um, for meat recovery. So they'll be flying around the helicopter pilot and there's a shooter swinging out the door shooting deer um, and those deer are flown out for meat and then we have at the moment Department of Conservation does some population control on tar for example and that will be just search and destroy missions. So mainly, on, mainly on females? Yep they're only shooting females um, so they're flying around the helicopter in areas with high density and shooting females at the helicopter um, that there could be termed heli hunting and then we have um, what the industry determines is called AATH, Aerially Assisted Trophy Hunting. Um, and this is heli hunting, which is clients or international hunters generally um, and guides using helicopters to assist them um, to find their animals. So these are generally spot and drop hunts. So it'll be flying around until you find your animal, get out the helicopter and shoot it, and away you go. Um, but due to the nature of animals now, the amount they've been hunted with helicopters, they don't really take to spot and drop too well because by the time you spot them, they've spotted you and they're on the move. Um, so under current AATH concessions, we're allowed to use what's termed herding. Um, so you, you don't see much of this happening on social media anymore because the videos are, are deleted quick smart for obvious reasons um, but you can fly around in a helicopter spot your tar or your chamois and you get out the door with your guide and then the pilot gives them a little bit of encouragement to come back your way <laughs> and then you can shoot your tar and away you go um, and there's a there's a whole uh, ethical spider web when you get into that yeah yeah it starts to become a a bit of a debacle really um, you know things like wild animal recovery like what we see in Texas where you're shooting pigs out of the helicopter you'd be hard pressed to call that hunting really you know it's, that's population control yeah it's it's like 
you know, going out at night and shooting predators or varmints or whatever. With or a like rabbiting at home. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it, it has its place. You know, it's, I suppose it's within the hunting umbrella, but you might determine it more shooting or pest control or game management or, you know, you can think up different names for it, but it's not really what we'd use to promote hunting or call hunting. Um, aerially assisted trophy hunting has it written in the name that it's a trophy hunt. Um, so these hunters are looking for trophies, you know, they're looking for mature bull tar or mature chamois bucks, and it's sold as a trophy hunt. And that is where you start to have problems, I think, um, when things are, are sold as as a trophy hunt. It kind of doesn't sit well with the non-hunting public. Um, when people see the word trophy hunt, there's a lot of things that go on in people's heads that that gets confused with what's going on, I think. But in terms of how a hunt like that operates, I mean, that must split just the hunting community, never mind the non-hunting community. Yes. Yeah, there's not really anyone I know that that supports um, AATH or is kind of aligned with it that's not filling their pockets with it. You know, there's there's no recreational hunters in New Zealand that go, oh yeah, that's a that's a good idea. Um, you know, the, the generally there's only a few groups of people that are involved with it, and that's the guides that are doing it, and the helicopter pilots that are involved. Um, I do know some helicopter pilots that are hard against it. They, they do it; it's their job. The it's like the taxi man delivering the drug dealer. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, do you blame the taxi man or do you blame the drug dealer? I don't, it's kind of like that, you know. The helicopter pilots are just there. They fly the machine. You pay the money. They, you know, they just somebody will do it. Yeah, they're just flying machines. They don't really have have a lot to do with it. I don't think um, they're not marketing those hunts or selling those hunts to clients. That's the guide and outfitters that are doing that. The big question is, if that is what you're purchasing, if you know fine well that that is what you are buying into as a hunt why the hell would you want to do it in the first place i mean that's my personal mindset it's not something that i'd want to do it doesn't make any sense to me as to why i'd want that as an experience i could i can understand like you've explained if you're doing it as some sort of you know management population control then yeah you're using using the tools that are at your disposal to do something as efficiently as possible but if you're doing it as a recreational hunting experience i think you're losing a lot yeah, I think there's a few reasons why why people will, will look at that as a hunting option. Some of it is, you know, it's thrill and exciting and you can't do it anywhere else. It's it's not a thing that you can do anywhere else. So people see it as, or, you know, it's like a bungee jump or whatever. It's something they're not normally going to do. Um, but but when in Rome, they'll, they'll give it a go. Um, so there's that kind of group of people, I think, that, that end up doing that hunt. And then I think there's a group of people that are, I don't know whether you call it, convinced or talked into it or sort of coerced in that direction um, for whatever reason. Um, Like we've seen, tar hunting and chamois hunting, real deal on foot can be physically demanding. Like all mountain hunts, it's, it's not for anyone. It's not for everyone, I mean. You know, there's people get old, people are unfit, there's... You know, it's just people that can't do that type of hunt, and that's fair enough. You know, not not everyone's going to be able to do it. But does that mean that you can use a helicopter to chase an animal around the mountain so you can shoot it for fun? 
I, I don't know. I think in New Zealand we're lucky in that we have other options. Um, like we have very good private hunting on private areas that are both free range and fenced. And in private land hunting, you can take clients of any sort of ability onto good quality animals, both free range and fenced. Um, you know, there's there's a lot more options in New Zealand than, than we have in most other places in the world because we have both the wilderness hunting. You know, what we were doing is kind of one end of the extreme and then you can go and stay in a five-star lodge and hunt a private reserve and it's a lot easier in terms of the physical side of the hunt but you can still walk away with a, a good quality animal that you have still earned um, a lot more than hunting with a helicopter anyway. Hmm. There's a couple of other things I want to run through, but I think what we're going to do is probably do it tomorrow. It's uh, it's cold and it's late. <laughs> uh, I, I want to touch on uh, the sort of well-documented and publicized uh, poisoning for predators, the 1080 drops, which you know, most people will be familiar with uh, that uh, the phrase 1080, 1080 poisoning in New Zealand. Um and the, the the government plan to remove predators by 2050. I want to talk through that a little bit and possibly also touch on your experience of um, working in North America as well. I think that would be quite interesting. But I think we'll, we'll call that an evening for now and uh, pick it up tomorrow because uh, I'm hoping that the cloud will have lifted and I'll get to see a little bit more of this awesome valley that we're in. Might get a walk around? Hopefully. No, it sounds good. I think it would be good to talk a, a little bit about the public lands and how that works in New Zealand because for our North American listeners they have access to public land and it's very much at the forefront of a lot of discussions right now because of the issues that they're having in, uh, in North America with access to public lands and potentially having some of those public lands taken back and privatized. In Scotland and the UK we do have some public land like the the Forest Commission is uh, essentially public land that you could access if you go and um, you know pay the pay the fees for a for a block. And in terms of public access, but non hunting access in Scotland, we do actually have access to everything. Even though it's not public land, you've got access over private land. Which I was explaining to uh, to Tyler from Modern Huntsman when he was over a few weeks ago, and he he was absolutely amazed by because private land in North America is just that. It is private and you cannot access it. So explain the layout in New Zealand because I was quite interested to understand that and you were showing me some of the maps which were incredibly detailed about what land was was where and how you could access it both for recreational outdoors stuff and and for hunting as a Kiwi. Yeah, so we've got um, a few different sorts of public land. So we have our basic public land, stewardship land, which is... Uh, managed by the Department of Conservation and that there's pretty open access most of the areas um, some areas will have some restrictions on how you can access them uh, but generally you can get in there and wander around and do what you want within reason and then we have National Park like we're just inside the National Park here now which has a few more restrictions on things like with hunting with dogs or bringing dogs into the National Park and fires and and the way you can access them. And then we have wilderness areas as well, much like they have wilderness areas in North America. 
So which, we were on the edge of a wilderness area yep. when we were when we were hunting last week. Yep, we're in the edge of a wilderness area, and wilderness areas are set up to be just that wilderness. They're not supposed to have any huts or tracks or any kind of modified landscape within them, and things like helicopter access, um, and the same within the national park. You're generally not allowed just to fly around in a helicopter and and get out and do what you want. Um, so they have restricted landing sites. Uh, within the wilderness areas and within the national park, uh, which is good. You know, it's great to have areas that are set aside to be pure wilderness. Um, there is a bit of grey area around helicopter access to some of these areas. Like, like for example, like here we couldn't fly in here, and but we were allowed to drive in along the yeah, along the yeah, riverbed. Yeah, we were allowed to drive, and we couldn't fly in and land within the national park and just get out and make a camp or whatever. Um, but they are allowed to helicopter hunt in here. Um, they have concessions to do that, which is, I think, kind of defeats the purpose a bit of of the wilderness areas and of the national parks. You know, it's, it's a hard one because... You better just elaborate on that a little bit because it's, you know, we used a helicopter to get into where, where we were, which saved us probably... A day walking through the through the bush, but there's uh, there's a spectrum of use of helicopters and actual helicopter hunting. So um, m- most people won't understand what that is. Yeah, it would have saved us a bit. Two, day, two days. Two days. Two days. Depends how fast you walk. Um, so like within the wilderness area, like we where we went into, we couldn't fly and land within the wilderness area and get out, and make a camp, and hunt there for a week. But we could have flown in there and done an AATH hunt. Um, so we could fly in there, fly around, find our target, get out the door, a helicopter chases him around for us, and then we shoot him and fly home. Um, so that there's a bit of a... Seems a little bit of a contradiction. Yeah, a bit of a contradiction how that works. Um, they are required to have concessions to do that, and there's, you know, there's only a certain number of operators that have concessions to do that, but it still does happen, and at times... Especially this time of year and onwards, there is quite a lot of helicopter activity in certain parts of the wilderness areas and national parks, which, yeah, kind of defeats the purpose to them a little bit. Um, I don't know how that's going to change over time. I think that AATH, the way it's currently run, has a has a limited lifespan. Um, I don't think it's going to be a long-term option in terms of promoting that as a viable trophy hunting or recreational hunting or sporting hunting it's certainly um, if you were to explain it 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 wouldn't sit very well with the general public no like you if you were to explain that at home helicopter hunting like you you've just described it people would be like what the fuck <laughs> yeah more or less and there's a reason why you don't you don't see any videos of it online yeah. um like last year was a good example there was um, some American guys over here, you know, and they're not the only ones that, that, that go on AATH. There's plenty of people out there that are doing it, and they did their AATH hunt for a chamois, and that was filmed, and that hunt was was put up online, and I, I don't think it lasted a week. I think it was. I remember when it made it to Facebook. Was yeah. was five or six days um, before that was completely eradicated off off all face of the earth, um, due to the negative backlash they received. And I think the big difference between the negative backlash they receive on a on a video like that or that style of hunting compared to the normal type of 
anti-hunting backlash we see is that it's it's not the anti-hunters or no, non wasn't, wasn't. Uh, non-hunters that are that are having a having a go at these guys. It was the general hunting public, you know, guys that. You know, you, you know, I've read all the comments, and you know, it's guys. Oh, I've been a hunter all my life, and this is this is bullshit. You know, yeah, this you, isn't hunting. You can't call yourself a hunter, and all this, all this kind of jazz. You can imagine what it was like, and and if you're taking the general hunting public that understand hunting, and you know, they know what hunting's about. If they don't accept that as a viable form of hunting, does it have a place? You know, how do we defend that against? the anti-hunter when they decide to turn up Mm. I think we're going to have a lot of problems I mean there's one thing it's a little bit like using I was was telling you about um, some discussions I'd had online about using thermal for for hunting for recreational hunting it's a little bit like that it's the use of technology for hunting and you can understand why you'd want to use helicopters as part of your uh, management process we use helicopters in Scotland to count to count red deer every year as part of the census and that makes perfect sense and here i mean we can go on to talk about this a bit um you know there is through your your government bodies there is the use of helicopters um, to control populations but as a recreational activity why would you want to stand on a mountainside and have a helicopter herd herd game towards you it it doesn't make any sense to me as a from a recreational hunting standpoint yeah it's it's an interesting um, sort of debate. I think you can go on and on. And where do you draw the line? You know, like if you look at North America, for example, areas where there's the expanding pig population, we see helicopter yep. hunting for yep. pigs. In Texas, um, in particular. Yeah. And, and we've got the same thing in New Zealand for certain species, and the same in Australia. And quite a few places around the world, they actually use helicopter hunting as a as a management tool or a pest control tool however you want to call it um and i don't think there's a lot of debate over that you know animals like pigs can definitely cause a lot of problems um yeah but there's no one out there shooting these pigs and calling it trophy hunting you know i think i think the trophy hunting words uh, are a dangerous sort of name um the way it's worded here in new zealand this is called aath is eerily assisted trophy hunting mm-hmm. there also seems to be a little bit of from the some of the pictures that I've seen of people who have who have done that, there's also a little bit of a almost not always. Sometimes there's a freaking helicopter sitting behind them, but there's also a, a little bit of a dishonesty with it, where it looks like there's been, you know, some sort of great wilderness hardship, which you know, which I think's awesome. But it hasn't been like that. It's been a couple of hours up. Boom bang, done. Yeah, yeah. This, <laughs> Thirty minutes back down to the nice warm lodge. It's the same with it's the same with high fence hunting or game estate hunting or whatever. You know, no one goes out there and shoots their red stag or their their big white tail buck or whatever, and and goes on the front of a magazine and says, "Here's a high fence deer I shot." Yeah, you know, that's, they, they, they never mention that. You know, they'll write they'll write a story about it or, or get it published or whatever, but they don't mention that it was in a high fence or it was a farm bred animal. Or, um, and you don't see these guys mention that, oh, we just chased it around with a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They kind of leave out the finer details. Yeah. Um, so there is a little bit of bent truth going on there, I think, with a few a few hunters. And I don't know, at the end of the day, it's 
you know, who are they trying to fool? Were they trying to fool themselves? Or I think probably trying, themselves. They're trying to fool themselves. everyone else. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, but but talk talk about the um, the, ha- the control and kind of management of the game that you have, and how how it's viewed by the government and hunters here, because that's a there's a bit of conflict there, and it's an interesting dynamic that you have. And it's maybe one that, well, hopefully is going to change as you push on into the future. Yeah, we've kind of reached a bit of a tipping point here where uh, uh, the bulk of our hunting public in New Zealand is, I think I think the majority of people are trying to push for a, a better style of management, um, a long-term management goal where we have better established um, sort of systems in place. Um, so things... Like helicopter tro- control and wild animal recovery, shooting deer for meat, things. Like that. I think they all have their place within New Zealand, but I think there needs to be better guidelines about where, when, and what, and how these things happen. Um, because at the moment, on our public land, we can have massive boom and bust cycles. Like a, a red deer, a good example where you can go go in a valley and there's a whole heap of deer in there. It's great, you know. You can find a good stag. You can find a a good hind to put in the freezer and then the price of venison picks up and a helicopter boy gets in there and kills them all. Yeah. And and in some ways the way it's managed now is it's not good for the commercial operators either or for the recreational hunters because there's no there's no job security for for the venison hunters. There's there's no long term plan, there's no long term management. It's not like like you guys see in a lot of your managed estates, you know, there'll be a quota on what they're going to shoot every year. Yeah, they'll have a plan. And that's worked out, and it's based on actual science, and it actually works. Yeah. You know, they've been managing areas for hundreds of years, and they'll have, you know, roughly set out what their population's going to be and what type of offset they have to do every year to manage that population. Whereas in And we're shooting a lot of females to, yep. to, to do that, to manage that population. Yep. And it it needs to happen in certain species in certain areas. You know, there needs to be that type of more commercialised shooting. I suppose it's not it's not really what you'd call hunting to a point. You know, it's it's a job that needs to be done, and it and it needs to be done in a professional manner. I think it's not just people out there just shooting animals for the fun of it. You know, it's it has a purpose. Yeah, that's the hard thing of it. If you t- look at the the estates back in Scotland, um, the actual population management of the deer herds, the vast majority of that is actually done by the deer stalkers themselves, not the recreational hunters, because they do it more, I mean, they do it day in, day out. So they're doing it way more efficiently. And yeah, they, okay, they, they take people out to go and hunt hinds. And it's, I mean, it's incredible value for money because hinds cost a lot less than, than stags. And for me personally, I think you get a, a great experience hunting hinds in the winter because the conditions are harder. The hinds are, are pretty alert and you get the opportunity to go and hunt quite a number of animals, whereas you might only get a chance to shoot or be able to afford to shoot one stag. But you don't really have that kind of system here where you've got permanently employed people looking after an area where you would go in, you, you as the, the person looking after there, and go and take care of 150 females of a particular species in not, that area. Not on not on public land. Um, so private land's a different thing here. You know, Some private land here is managed like that. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, you know, some of it will be 
because it's managed or owned by a an outfitter or a guiding company, you know, and they have their own goals and what they want to do. Uh, but on public land, we don't have have any sort of management system that that has any goal in mind. Um, you have a. Uh, you were showing me the map the other day. I mean, there's a, a lot of public land. Yeah, there is, especially um, down the west coast. Yeah, so like you guys in Scotland, it's all sort of privately managed. Yeah, the hunting most of it. and. Yeah. And there's money behind it. In North America, on public land, we see things managed. You know, there's, there's different states and different areas that are managed for different reasons, but the way they can manage it is through their hunting techniques and seasons and tags. You know, so some areas they're going to issue a certain number of doe tags or elk cow tags and have rifle seasons and archery seasons, and they can work out. You know, you can go online and work out how many animals were shot out of a certain area. You know, I've seen the statistics. You can go back five years, ten years, what the success rate is, how many animals were shot out of this area. Yeah, we've got a lot of data. Yeah, and and it's all based on on pretty sound science, um, and it does work. This is the main thing. It does work long term, and there's money involved with it, so it's a it's a continually funding system. Whereas here we've we've kind of missed the bat with that, um, and culturally with our hunting culture in New Zealand, it's it's going to be rather hard to to implement a management system. You know, it takes a long time for people to change their opinions and to have the laws change with it as well. Um, some people here don't think we need to change anything. They think, oh, just stay the way it is. It's, it's the way it's meant to be. But I think as we have, have an increase in population and our wilderness areas become less wild and... You know, over time, as as the population expands, you just you can't escape the number of hunters we have. You know, there's just more and more people getting out there, and people are either going to lose out on on hunting because it's going to be overhunted, or they're going to lose out on the quality of of the experience. Um, in in North America, they've got quite a good way of um, the people hunting paying into a system that that pays for the management through this uh, through the the government organizations that kind of link doesn't seem to exist so much here no no but, i mean it sounds like you would be able to you would benefit if there was a link like that yep but that requires legislative change i suppose yes yep and it's kind of the chicken before the egg do we need to see our laws change before we see the hunting culture change in New Zealand, or does it need to happen the other way around? Um, it's hard to say. At the moment, we really need something to happen upstairs. Um, the, the big people in the, in the um, beehive need to need to think hard about you know how many voters are there that this this is involved with. You know, there's a there's a lot of hunters out there. I was going to say, as a, as a portion of your population, you probably have more hunters. I mean, you only got like five odd million people here. Yeah, as a portion of your population, you've got a lot, of, a lot of hunters. Yeah, we've got about four and a half million people. And most of New Zealand, especially the South Island, is still very rural-based. Um, and most people, even if they're not hunters, you know, I have friends that have they've never been hunting at all. Not hunters at all, but they're still understand roughly what's going on yeah. and and have a bit of connection with oh yeah that makes sense you know you go out and you find a deer and shoot it and bring it home and eat it you know that makes sense to people they go oh, yeah you know that's <laughs> that's a legitimate thing to do um we don't have 
yet anyway in New Zealand. We don't have the kind of anti-hunting pressure that you guys are seeing in Europe and and what North America is seeing at the moment. So we're quite lucky at the moment that we have the freedoms um, to do what we want publicly. Mm. You know, it's not a problem to walk around town and you're, and you're hunting fishing clothes, covered in blood and guts, you know. <laughs> you, know you, you don't, don't really, no, no one really turns their head, do they? <laughs> no, no, you drive around town with a pig on, on the back of your truck and no one bats an eyelid. You probably get a few thumbs up as you're yeah, driving, yeah. Yeah, that's just a normal kind of thing. Um, and I think that was the way it was in Europe and North America, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, but, but things have changed mainly through the increase of urban population. You know, you've got big cities and people are removed from from the outdoors and removed from how nature actually works. Um, we're starting to see that in the North Island here. You know, Auckland's a, a huge city now. There's more people live there than the whole South Island. Um, and I think we will eventually see the problems that you guys in Europe are seeing and, and what North America is seeing. But it's just it's just taken a bit, a bit longer to get here. Um, but I think we're in a position where we can kind of predict the future to a point we can see what has happened in Europe and what has happened in North America and go well right we can be a bit ahead of the curve and and make some changes here um, to sort of safeguard ourselves for what for what is to come but um, but part of that is going to be to act to to have some uh, sort of management plan for your game where the game has has a value yep and people don't treat them, and, and I think this, you know, we've talked about this a lot over the, the, the last week, where they're not seen as a pest. Yeah. Because that kind of mindset seems to be the root cause of a lot of the, a lot of the problems. Yeah, and a, a lot of that has changed. Um, people of my generation, not all of them, but a lot of us have kind of changed our opinions on what we were, we were grown up with. Um, you know, like my grandfather's generation, they were... They were either shooting game to kill them or shooting game to make money out of them, um, either through skins or, or bounties on animals. And my father's generation kind of inherited that from them. Um, but now we're seeing a lot of the the newer generation, I think it's a number of, of things, but exposure to, to international, exposure to what the rest of the world is doing. Um, exposure to systems that are different to what we have and people go oh, hold on there's another way to do this you know this isn't the be end be all end all kind of system we have in New Zealand there is there is better ways to go about it um, but we are behind the times in terms of the way our government is is managing things um, and and they're losing out on that as well I think Talking, I don't want to go rewind the clock a wee bit uh, because at the start we we said we were going to tell people about the the hunt that we did and we actually kind of we got sidetracked. <laughs> um, we spent a lot of time, uh, well, a lot of time walking around, a lot of time sitting with your the spotting scope, studying animals, and I learned a lot from you this week in terms of age classing and the importance of selecting you know, the the right types of males. Uh, especially with regard to tar, which we spent the most time looking at. <clears throat> give me the, um, give me the sort of the short version rundown of what you've of, of the knowledge that you've gained about tar throughout your lifetime of hunting, and what people need to 
consider, I mean, one of the things that I always try and impress upon people, and I was guilty of not doing that for this trip because I just got too busy, is if you're going to go to, uh, especially another country, and go and hunt species you've never hunted before, try and take the time just to learn a little bit about it because I think it, you gain so much more from it. And if you're with a really good guide, they will impart a lot of that knowledge on you when when you're in, in the place. But it's nice to go with a little bit of knowledge to start with. Yeah, hope, hopefully we know what we're doing. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have my opinions on, on how I think things should be managed here. Some people probably think it should be different. Um, but alpine game generally around the world and, and here in New Zealand especially, we don't need a huge quantity of animals in the alpine environment. Alpine environments are quite sensitive, so I don't think we need to have 100,000 tar stomping around in the hills. Um, so in terms of our population management, I think we need to have a really high male-to-female ratio and and a good age class to the animal. Um we get people from all over the world come and hunt tar with us, and most people at the end of the day, they, they say they don't care about inches. You know, they're not, they're not looking for a particular sized trophy or whatever, or whatever you want to call it, a particular sized animal. Um, but with the tar, something that makes a tar a tar is the skin. Mm. You know, a big bull tar has a big mane, and that's... They're incredible to it's, watch. It's a pretty unique um, species. They're one of the only animals that actually has what you call a mane. Um, it looks like, almost like, it looks like a miniature musk ox when you see it walking across the sky. Yeah, yeah they, are, they are very similar in the way they, they walk um, and the posture to them. And and the tar is, is a slow-growing animal. You know, like most mountain game, they take quite a few years to reach maturity. Um, so for us as guides, we're looking for bulls that are kind of minimum six, seven years old, hopefully a bit older than that, um, because they take that long to get fully grown and they take that long to actually get their proper full skin um, and that is what people are after so so our job as guides is to make sure you guys are safe first and foremost moving around the hills um, and try to pick out those older bulls um, it usually takes a bit more patience and a bit more sitting and looking and you might have to walk a little bit further but at the end of the day it usually pays off um, the area we were hunting is pretty low density in terms of tar we didn't see a huge number of animals but we did see quite a good male to female ratio yeah we did. Um, which was good and some areas you see it's a lot different some areas especially on the east coast you see very high numbers of females uh, and low numbers of males and that is where we we try to implement you know a bit of nanny shooting you know, you find your mature bull when you shoot him, and you know there might be a few too many nannies running around, and there's nothing wrong with with shooting a couple of them. Um, you know, they're good to eat, and they do have nice skins as well. They're, they're pretty plain looking compared to a bull, but they are nice and soft. Um, so make a good jacket. Yeah, <laughs> yep. So I think it just takes people to think a little bit more um, about you know what is the long term goal. You know, am I Am I helping myself out? You know, you think, oh, I'm going to come back five years down the track or next month I'm out here hunting and I want to find a a bull or whatever, but I've shot 18 or 20 young bulls like we've seen in the hut book here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, guys come and shoot, shoot 20, 30 young bulls. And that was in a week, the, 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 what you're referring to. Yeah, saw, yeah. you know, just 
have have they helped anything? What have what have they achieved? You know, in terms of population management, and that's what people often fall back on. Oh, you know, I'm helping to manage the population. You know, not not all, if you're shooting males. You yeah, know. for all species around the world, shooting males is you know is more or less pointless in terms of population management. You're far better off spending that time and effort shooting females, um, which definitely does have have its place. There's definitely areas where that needs to happen. Uh, but just going around shooting a whole bunch of of young males of any species, it doesn't matter what they are. It doesn't really it doesn't really achieve anything. Um, I if, don't think anyway. For me, when we were you know we we when we've been sitting watching tar on, on an opposite face, and you've been pointing stuff out to me, you know, look how far the mane's coming down the body, trying to count the growth rings. I mean, that's something that that kind of knowledge doesn't exist back home because we don't have anything that has growth rings it's all all antlered game uh, that was fascinating to me to try and understand how that works in terms of aging and I, I was kind of quite amazed even though you got a telescope you you 200 meters away being yeah. able to age it and and the particular bull that i shot i mean you had only looked at that for about five seconds and you knew immediately that that's an old bull yeah um, I get lucky every now and then. I get <laughs> I get it right every now and then. Um, yeah, it there does. was a level of excitement in your face when he walked out. <laughs> it's one of those things that that takes a it just takes a long time to to get a handle on. Um, and looking at a lot of bulls. Yep. Yeah. And you know we're all human. We all make mistakes, and we we don't get it right all the time. But we try our best. Um, you know, it's the same. You'll have good guys in Scotland, and and they'll have a pretty good handle on their stags, yep. and, and they'll know exactly what's going on. Um, and it just comes from spending hours out on the hill looking at animals. There's, there's no sort of shortcut. Um, you can read a book and learn a little bit, but at the end of the day, you've got to get out there and spend spend a lot of time looking through a scope at critters. Um, animals like tar and chamois, for example, as well. You know, the ratio for horn to body size is very small. Um, yeah, aging them on the hoof is is very difficult. Um, I haven't hunted a lot of other game, but they're pretty similar in terms of mountain goats, a similar sort of proportion in terms of horn to body size, and they're pretty hard to age. Um, sheep, for example, are generally a lot easier to age because their horns are you know, a lot bigger and a lot more defined in terms of finding their annuli. Yeah. It, uh, it was, for me, the you know when we walked over to the, the tower that I... That I shot and killed, and to see the age of a bull like that, and and he wasn't it wasn't in particularly good shape. I no, mean, you, you reckoned he was probably uh, probably be his last winter. And there there is a certain satisfaction. Forget about inches. <clears throat> there is a, a certain satisfaction knowing that you've taken a very old animal. That that was probably his last year anyway. Yeah, yeah, it's quite cool to be able to do that and see. You know, I'm pretty sure a tar like that was at, was at the end of his life. Um, you know, we see bulls live 14, 15 years old. is is about as old as they get. Um, your bull, like we skinned him out and cut him up, and both of us, he's probably one of the worst conditioned animals we've seen. You yeah. know, he was he was just skin and bones. It was, Beyond ones that were actually sick. Yeah, I've never seen anything quite so thin. Yeah, there was there was not an inch of fat on him. And, you know, he's still got another couple of months of winter to go, and he's not going to get a good feed until the spring. So reality is this this was probably the end of his time anyway. 
Um, so it's pretty cool to be able to get in there and, and find those animals. And there's a certain character, I think, to to old mountain game. Uh, and worldwide with sheep and goat hunters, age is, is something that a lot of people kind of strive for. You know, I get clients from all over the world and a lot of older guys that have hunted, you know, I've hunted a lot of ibex and chamois and mountain goats and sheep and and the age of an animal was something that they always kind of put in high regard. Um, some people disagree. Some people don't think, oh, it matters. It's, it's, you know, you just get out there and get after it. But I think long term, in terms of management, it does make a difference um, if you can try and select those those oldest animals every time. It's obviously not possible all the time to take the oldest animal, but I think you've got to try a little that bit. That should be your, your goal. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Oh, we uh, last night when we came up, was it um, was it mints from the the tar that we were eating last night? Yeah, it was actually. Yeah, it was. Well, despite being thirteen and a half years <laughs> old, it actually tasted pretty damn yeah, it's good. A, it's, it's all right, mint stuff. You would have been a bit a bit chewy just to eat them as steaks, but. Um. The mince, the mince solves a lot of those problems. We had uh, the chamois that I, I shot we had the night before at your house, and that was bloody good. Yeah, it was actually better than I expected. Yeah. Um, a bit of backstrap cooked up. So, yeah, we we, um, we skinned them out, sorted the, the skulls out, extracted all the meat, put it in the packs and uh, walked it back to camp. Yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty awesome experience, actually. Yeah, um, it, it it does add a lot of work. To the hunt, um, extracting it, meat, but it does add a whole different kind of experience to it. You know, to us, it added a whole another day to our trip, and I think that's the you know that's the res- the responsibility that you need to take upon yourself if you're going to do that. Yeah, for, for me, that's how I've always felt about it. Yeah, okay, it, maybe an ancient animal is not going to be the not going to be the tastiest uh, tenderloins in the world, but you know, it still is. I think it still is something that we are responsible for if we pull the trigger, and you know, and that's what we did. Yeah, you, you put all your shit in my bag, and then uh, you, you put all the meat in your bag, and we walked it back out. And it, it wasn't exactly easy you know, walking if, it out of that canyon. But if you were going out there just to fill your freezer, you're probably not going to go tar hunting looking for an old bull you know that's no that's the not the not, not the sensible way to fill your freezer but just because an animal is a is a trophy you know however you want to call it does that mean that you you can't eat it you know you can actually do both um and that is what we see in in north america for example pretty much all the states and in canada as well you it's a legal requirement yeah you got to do it um yeah. and we're serious kind of, fines and if you don't and we've kind of seen the backlash to what happens when when that's not written in the law with with the grizzly bears in british columbia um it doesn't you know, sit that, well with it, with the public yeah, and with, even a lot of hunters it doesn't sit well the idea of going killing something extracting whatever is the trophy for you whether that be the skin or the skull or whatever and leaving the meat to rot. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a a bit of a hard to justify for a lot of people. Um but then you do run into run into management things, you know, it doesn't seem so bad if you shoot a rabbit. Yeah. And leave it on the hill, you know, or if you kill a mouse. Yeah, you're you going to eat it. You're going to eat them. You know, we No, we, you're you're right. You're absolutely right. Where do you draw the line? It starts becoming 
a bit of a grey area, you know, when an animal gets to a certain size, it seems like it's a waste. Yeah, and we seem to treat it differently. I mean, there, there are plenty of people sitting in their, in the towns and cities around the world with fly strips. Yeah. Sticking poor little flies um, to their fly strips, which, um, you know, just turn to crisp as it gets hot. And no one worries about that at all. No, it, people think nothing of. That's at the extreme end of a, you know, comparing a fly to a tar, <laughs> but it's the same idea, kind of. Yeah, yeah. You think nothing of killing rats and mice, or you know, you might have a magpie or a crow or something. You think nothing of shooting him. Um, but you magpies know, don't taste so good. <laughs> you know, you know, you don't go out there and cut up your crow and decide you're going to eat it. You know, or or certain animals that are determined to be a, a pest or a nuisance animal. Um, yeah, when it comes to shooting a deer, it just seems like a horrid waste to just leave it there on the hill. It's funny how society has kind of categorized it like that. Mm. We we care about certain animals more than others, or, or we feel a, an attachment and emotion to certain animals more than others. I always think that, uh, we've talked, my brother and I have talked about this before on the podcast, is that it always amazes us just how little people seem to be concerned about fish. Yeah. You know, where, uh, whereas in terms of our impact and what we're doing to the planet, and when you look at our seas, I mean, what's happening underneath the water is atrocious, and we really need to care about our fish a lot more, even though they're cold, wet, and slimy. Fish, fish can't scream. No, they can't. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's, there's a huge ongoing ethical debate, you know, on what what is ethical, you know, what is unethical, what's inhumane, you know, there's... There's so many loopholes and and grey areas that you can discuss that it's kind of an endless debate. Um, you know what goes on with commercial fishing. If that was happening with our commercial hunting, you know there'd, there'd be a lot more questions asked because <laughs> people would see it. Yeah, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind when it's out of sea. Yeah, yeah, and you can relate to it to a furry critter, and especially when you get into African game and big bigger game you know when you start looking at animals like giraffes or or an animal like a horse for example I had some hunters um, just recently from Kazakhstan and in a lot of Central Asian countries horses you know used used for riding they're a huge part of their culture but they're also used for meat yeah I've eaten quite a lot of horses and you know that's a perfectly normal thing for them they're farming horses purely for meat consumption whereas a lot in the western world you know, people get up in arms about that. You know, and you you uh, wouldn't see horse in the supermarket. Well, <laughs> we, we, well, we, I joke, but and we've talked about this in the podcast before. You might not be aware, but our supermarkets there was a big scandal maybe three four years ago because a lot of the race horses that this, were this. being put down in Ireland were ending up in our beef burgers in the supermarkets in Scotland. There's a bit more horse meat out there than what you think. Yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, you don't see it at home. You don't see it. You don't, you wouldn't see horse steaks. No. Because no, people, it's, it's not palatable to people. It's, it's the same cultures. here. You yeah. think you think nothing to go to McDonald's and you have your Big Mac or your chicken burger or whatever. But you know, if they had the horse Big Mac on the menu, you know, people would be crying about it. And well, <laughs> maybe not in Kazakhstan. You know, yeah. Well, you know, what's the difference between a horse and a cow? I think the French. I think the French eat horse quite. A lot. Yeah, some I mean, of, quite readily, but then they eat frogs too. And <laughs> <laughs> some of the Eastern European countries as well. I think they eat quite a lot of horse meat, but. Yeah, there's, there's things like that, whereas who's right and who's wrong, you know, there's a lot of cultural differences that have big impacts on the way animals are treated um, across the world. 
You spent uh, a bit of time in, in North America uh, in, in the last few years. What was that experience like for you and, and how important has it been in kind of shaping your understanding of the direction that you want to take personally as a guide? Uh, because you, I think I always think that we, we learn a lot from we or we can learn a lot from other cultures, other ways of hunting, and, and people don't spend enough time um, actually putting time aside to understand how people do things in different parts of the world. I, I I've been fortunate that I've travelled a lot. I'm in New Zealand right now, so I'm learning how you've done you know, how you guys do stuff. I've spent some time in Africa and, and been to. Um, Nepal recently and you get this this amazing mix and you realize that it can't be done the same everywhere but there are probably things that that one country or culture can learn from another yeah especially at a younger age you know as as you come out of school and if you're exposed you know I started guiding at a young age and then I did a couple of seasons in North America you know if you do those things at a young age before you've really um kind of set in your ways I think it it makes you question the way you do things um, because you're exposed to different systems well, like in Canada where I worked it's it's a very different system to here and there's a lot of Kiwis over there probably more Kiwis and Canadians at the moment working in the in the guiding industry both the outfits I worked at we outnumbered the Canadians um, probably like five to one <laughs> that's crazy um, you know there's a lot of Kiwis working over there at the moment what do you think the reason for that is? I mean, more um, Kiwis in other parts of the world. I think, I think there's a lot of Kiwis that love hunting. You know, right, right to the core of the person. You know, they just they want to be out there hunting and they yeah. want to want to try and make a living of it. Um, and they enjoy the wilderness hunting, the challenge, the physical and mental challenge of of wilderness hunting. And in New Zealand, the way our guiding outfitting industry is run, there, there isn't really the position for them. Mm. Uh, the bulk of the guiding industry here is focused around around the high fence and the the high end lodge um, type of guiding. And I've talked to quite a few young Kiwis that have, and like myself, have worked a little bit in that industry. You know, done a done a season or done a few of those hunts, and then go, well, this this isn't really what what I'm into. This isn't what hunting is to me. Because there's not that many people here as guides doing what you do. No. No, and the main reason behind that is because it's it's pretty difficult to make a yeah. living out of it. Um, the bulk of the industry here is focused on on the high fence, high end um, market, uh, mainly because that is where where you can make big money. Um, that is the way the industry is is sitting at the moment, um, but that could well change. I think I think that industry is always going to exist in New Zealand, but I think there is a place for more more of the wilderness um, hunting and I think there's a big misconception in the South Pacific where where free range of wilderness hunting is seen as a cheap option mm. whereas in North America and, and Africa for example as well the the big high end hunts, the expensive stuff is the wilderness is, stuff. Is the wilderness hunt because it's hard. The logistics are complex. Yeah, you, your costs it's a lot of work. Your costs are just a lot higher. You know, you look looking at high fence hunts you know they're generally only a couple of days yeah. we can boil them down to hours whereas wilderness hunts are quite often 10 days or two weeks or like when i looked at rex rex forrester's book the other day briefly you know he said he, his minimum trip was 30 days 
Oh, yeah. we were looking at that book. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That was back from the 1950s, wasn't it? Yeah, 50s through to maybe the 70s, I think he kept going to. Those boys were hardcore. Um, you know, and, and the same in North America. You know, you get up to the Yukon and Northwest Territories and that. Yeah, it's like 30 days. 20-day hunts. Yeah. Um, and that is where the big money is. You know, obviously there's big costs involved with, with hunts like that. You've got huge logistic costs and running costs of horses and guides and wranglers and all that adds up. But I think there's a bigger demand for for that wilderness hunting as the bulk of the the population around the world is becoming more urbanized. You know? I agree. I mean, we're even seeing it at home. More and more people want to have an experience, and yeah. an all-encompassing experience that goes far beyond pulling the trigger and killing something, like what we've just done. Yeah. 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 People need a little bit of, you know, getting out there, getting cold and wet, and, yeah. and having an actual story, you know, when they come home from their hunt, you know, and their friends or family or whatever, ask them, you know, how... How did your hunt go? It shouldn't be a five-minute conversation. It shouldn't be, uh, yeah, I took ten steps out the truck, put yeah. my sticks up and pulled the trigger. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's, there should be a, a proper story to it, a journey to it, you know. You've got to sit down for a whole evening and explain what happened, you know. It adds a lot more to the to the experience, and, and as people, you learn a lot and grow a lot, I think. Yeah, you definitely do. You learn most, a lot about yourself. Most people I get, you know, at the end of the hunt, they're very different and you know you meet a person as a guide you know we pick people up from the airport a complete stranger we might have talked on the phone or email a little bit and you spend 10 days in the bush with them and you either love them or hate them by the end of it kind of thing (laughs) you know you know most people you get along with um you know and you end up being quite good friends with people you know when you're stuck in the bushes you can't zone out you've got to communicate with people you've got to get along you know you can't afford to to have an argument or you can't afford to get pissed off because you need each other to to survive and get through the trip um and that there's something that a lot of society is is missing out on you know you you live in the city and you zone out to your neighbors you don't want to talk to them you know you hop on the subway like a, a few years ago I went over to Paris and Hop on the little subway and you're jammed in there like sardines. You're sitting right next to someone and you you're say, probably reading a book or looking and you at the say, phone. Yeah, and you or say, "G'day, you know, how's it going?" And you try and have a chat with them, and they look at you like you're a rapist or something. <laughs> and so you Kiwis are just too friendly. That's and they, they won't even won't even say hello to them. And you're sitting within an inch of them, yeah. and they won't even talk to you. And that's you know what what <laughs> you know that what does that say for for the human race? You know. It, it is one of the cool things about, and we notice it when we do our wilderness hunts in Scotland, there's no signal. So you've got no internet, no access to anything on your phone, any electronic device. So you've got two choices. You either sit and read a book, which would be very antisocial, or you sit around the fire and tell stories, which is what we used to do before all of this and that is what you do and it's amazing how people kind of come out of their shells and you you start to learn about people at a sort of depth and level that you don't really get in normal society these days when you're out hunting and there's nothing but a wet ass and, yeah. and, and a hot fire people people become human again yeah they do yeah. yeah and quite often it takes a bit of a bit of hardship and a bit of wilderness before that happens um it's easy to to kind of escape um, communicating with people and escape your feelings and escape all of that in modern society. It's it's easy to zone out and get stuck on your phone or stuck on the computer and 
and you don't have to talk to anyone. You can go a whole day and you don't have to talk to another person, which which isn't healthy. Um, you know, we see a lot of problems with that in modern Western countries. You know, we see a lot of mental health problems and we're, we're seeing a lot of issues that on paper shouldn't really be happening. You know, we should be, all be happy. You know, we've got three meals a day, we've got a house to live in. Why is everyone, why is everyone so upset? Um, whereas you go to countries like Nepal, for example, where people, in a lot of ways, you can look at it and say they're living in absolute misery. You know, it's cold and it's a hard mountain. If you look at it and, with Western eyes. Yeah. And, they're, and they're struggling to survive. But on the other hand, they're the nicest people you're ever going to meet and they're happy and they're absolutely loving life. Yeah. Yet it's easy to look at them on on paper and think, these people are having a horrible time. You know, they They've got nothing to eat, and it's cold, and it's wet, and they're, they're struggling to live. Yet, yet they're thriving. Um, so I think we've missed a lot of that with with Western society. You can you can enjoy life probably more with a lot less. Yeah, and I think that we get caught up in a lot of that. Um, I think in in our lives, it's just the way that our kind of you know, our sort of Western culture has gone. We feel like we need more. Yeah, to be happier. When really, when you boil it down, and and you know this is why I've made a lot of the, the choices that I've made in my life over the last ten years, the things that you end up talking about and telling stories about, which tend to be the things that have bring you have brought you the most joy and, and have been most life changing, because that's why you want to tell stories about them, are the things that tend to be stripped back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you never go home. I'm going to be talking about this uh, this trip, you know, for the next well, probably until I die. You know, to some, to to a greater or lesser extent. You, you never go home and tell your friends. And oh, I sat down in the office and I made a hundred thousand dollars that day. You know, yeah. that, no one you cares. Should have seen that spreadsheet. Man. Yeah, no, 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 <laughs> no one cares. You know, you're not going to tell you. You sit around and tell your grandkids about the day you made all this money on the stock exchange or something. You know, that, that doesn't exist. No one cares. It's also a very short story. Yeah, no yeah. one cares about that. Um, yeah. you know. People, I, I always, I, I actually find that increasingly, and I've noticed it more and more in the last couple of years, that people are intrigued and almost to, to a certain extent jealous of experiences. When you say that you've been somewhere or you're going to this place, or you, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we do is work, but I'm still getting a chance to travel and, and meet a lot of people. And people are envious of that, but it's they're envious of the experience. Yeah, yep. I think that is missing in, yep. in a lot of people's lives. Yep, just even you know things like being hungry or being cold or being wet. A lot of people in Western society have not actually experienced that in their whole life. It's yeah, which I, is hard to it's imagine. A great point. You know, people it's think, oh, point. you know, I'm hungry. So you you don't know what hungry is. You know, no. <laughs> we don't know what being cold and hungry is. You know, because we just live in a in a soft cushion environment and it's easy to get upset about about meaningless things hmm. um, i think our feet did a pretty good job of knowing what cold was this last week yeah <laughs> yeah but but yeah there's a whole spectrum we did we didn't lose any toes and we no, survived no. and at the end of the day you laugh about it and go oh, that was that was good fun yeah <laughs> where do i sign up to do it again yeah absolutely some people might think that um doing something like the the wilderness hunts here is just a case of you a guide looking after the logistics of picking someone out and you get out into the middle of nowhere and you just see what happens because it's a wilderness area 
But I mean, you were you were telling me about you know, scouting in these places in the off season. There's a lot amount of there's a lot of work that goes into making sure that you know what you're doing, and you've got a handle on what's happening outside of the period of the time when you're here with clients. A yeah. lot of people won't appreciate that. Yeah, our, our public land here is is chopping and changing very quickly um, in terms of hunting pressure and and game densities and different areas can change very rapidly. Um, you know, especially with commercial operators or a certain group of hunters like we've seen in the hut book here, you know, you can have a certain valley and go go in there, oh, this is a great spot. One group of guys come in there and kill 20 bull tar. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and, that and that's re- a reality. And, that's and that actually happens. And it really does change um, the hunting quality in areas very quickly. Um, so both myself and Tim, you know, we spend hundreds of thousands of hours out there wandering around in the bush um, getting a good handle on what's actually happening and we try to pick locations that are going to work um, that we know that we can we can find animals we know they're going to be there one way or another and areas we can move around in safely and and look after people in the hills because it you, is dangerous terrain you can, can you can end up in a disaster um, if you're not prepared um, our mountains are, they're not the highest mountains in the world, but they can be very changeable in terms of weather and and very dangerous. Um, and we are seeing the, the the other side of that. Unfortunately, we're seeing an increase in hunter deaths in the mountains. Um, some of that is inexperience. Some of it's just there's more people out there. So there's obviously going to be more accidents. Um, but a lot of them are preventable. Um, and you just have to kind of, kind of take things slowly and be prepared. Um, and that is our job. You know, we we spend a lot of time thinking about what we're going to do. We don't just run off into the hills randomly mm. um, and make it up when we get there. But do you think there's a lot of people going up uh, into your hills here that are basically just not really prepared for the the environment? Is that the reason why people have been have been dying? Um, Yes and no. Yeah, I think I think there is. I think in this modern day and age, we see it with everything. You, all the gear, no idea. Um, yeah. It's easy to easy to buy buy all the fancy stuff and and get out there after it. Um, and alpine game, alpine hunting is very different to anything else. You know, you can be a very experienced hunter. You could have hunted, you know, fifty species of animals across the world, but you know, how much time have you actually spent? In the mountains, mountain you know, actually in the alpine environment, um, you know, what you learn hunting roebuck doesn't translate to getting around. No, the hills. it doesn't. Um, you know, and and a lot of people don't understand that, and it's hard to hard to get that across, and hard to prepare if you don't have an alpine environment in your backyard. Even the difference between the North Island and the South Island. Um, I don't know, there might be a few North Islanders listening saying, oh, we've got big mountains. And, <laughs> and yes, there is there is some serious terrain in the North Island, but there's a big difference between that and hunting in a purely alpine environment. Mm. You know, there's a certain way to move as well, to be comfortable, well, and to be comfortable moving in those environments. I mean, yep. it's, it's um, some of what we did, with, you know, it was out, out within my comfort zone, just because I don't get to experience it as often as you do. Yep. Because you're yep. doing it all the time. And it's one of those things that takes, you know, what, what I'm doing now and what I was doing five years ago has changed. Um, and I think we're always changing our kind of 
boundaries where we decide that oh this is safe or this is we've walked too far today or how far can we walk you know what type of terrain we're in and those things are constantly changing we always change our opinions and the conditions themselves are always changing um, so it's one of those things that takes takes a lot of time to gain experience you know you've got to spend a lot of a lot of hours in the hills figuring out what's going on and trying to get a little bit of training as well talking to experienced guys on on what they're doing um. i want to finish up on uh when we drove in here today to do this uh the last bit of photography and filming and stuff we're going to do uh we came past uh what i would what was the stereotypical kiwi hunter that i have in my mind those guys are hardcore. This guy was walking. I mean, it's freaking cold up here, and he had a pair of shorts on. I mean, <laughs> explain the the. I mean, of a certain generation, and, and those guys just—they seem a lot tougher than us. He's, he's, in their puffy jackets. He's a, he's a real kiwi. Yeah, um, I'm I'm pretty soft in this game of things, <laughs> um, and I know I am. I feel the cold, and I don't wear my short shorts. But you know, the the average kiwi hunter is is a different breed. Um, they seem to be. Maybe not the smartest critter out there, but <laughs> but one that's reasonably tough. Um, you know, and like when I grew up hunting and things like wet boots and, and having a wet sleeping bag and things like that are relatively normal. Like That was just accepted. It's not something you wake up in the morning and go, oh, my boots are wet. You wake up in the morning and go, oh, you know, that's just what they, they were always wet. So you just put them on and away you go. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the short shorts, like the guy we saw, he was in his sixties, I would say, yeah. possibly older. And there's there's snow on the ground. It's winter time out there, snow and ice on the ground, and he's wearing, we're right beside a glacier. It's he, just over here. He's wearing short shorts, and that was it. He had a fleecy shirt on, and away you go. And he's wandering around out in the hills, and quite he, happy. He's probably been doing that for forty years. Um, and you know, he look at us with our with your Gore-Tex pants and your bloody fancy jacket and think, you know, what? what is all this other crap? Um, so remember that next time you're worrying about all the latest gear. <laughs> yeah, so I think I think it's easy to forget that, that humans are a bit tougher than we make out. And you would have seen the same thing in Nepal. Yeah, yeah, I mean, those guys, some of those guys were walking up the mountains up at 14,500 feet with flip-flops on. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think we're a lot tougher than we make out. Um, and the average white man's become pretty soft. I know I have. <laughs> Seem to get softer every year. Want more gear, and warmer pants, and warmer clothes, and warmer socks. Um, but it's quite good still to get back to the basics every now and then. I try and do a bit of a trip where you you strip back your gear and just just do it hard for a few days and kind of see what you're made of. And just sometimes it almost feels like we've taken some elements too far and actually the way that uh, they some of the guys used to do it was probably better there yeah. are some there's some things you think well maybe actually that's better than the modern stuff that we're using now yeah things like well, like the other night when we light a fire and cook your food on a fire as opposed to having your gas cooker you know it might seem like oh it's a bit of a pain to light the fire and it takes longer to boil your water but there's a whole skill set and experience attached to the fire you know you've got to know how to light a fire you've got to find the wood and it adds a whole lot more to the trip and to that small experience you know boiling a boiling a cup of tea has become you know what is the new Click. new new jet boil is 
100 seconds or something yeah. they're advertising it you know and that's great but what's the rush yeah there's you know, nothing else to do once have, the lights have, are have you ever sat down at night and go holy shit I've got 100 seconds to make my dinner like, <laughs> like, what, like what are you going to do 100 seconds what do you do for the rest of the evening yeah you know you know there's a there's a point where you know you're there to enjoy the outdoors and that's part of it I don't think I've ever been in a rush rush to make a cup of tea in a hundred seconds it seems a bit ridiculous yeah you can see how that stuff's developed but yeah you're right enjoying if you're here to enjoy the experience enjoy all of it yeah and yeah. uh enjoy the small things and there is i mean we've always, always say this but there there is some something uh not that we could do it here where we are now because one it's bloody wet two there's no trees and you're not also not allowed to light fires here uh, but when you have the opportunity to just step it back a little bit like that, I mean, do it. Yeah. If you've got the time to do it, and, um, because you, you do get a lot out of it. And fire is a funny thing. It it connects us in an incredibly primitive way. Um, I mean, it's addictive. The amount of time, I'm sure you're exactly the same. The amount of time you've probably spent just looking at flames it's, is ridiculous. It's very much the core of, somewhere deep down inside a human you know there's something about it you can sit there and just look at a fire and it feels good for it some does. reason you know go the, try and explain that you know a hundred a hundred thousand years ago when the first guy started it up he was just like holy shit we've we've conquered the earth this is it <laughs> and i defy anybody even somebody who spent their entire life living in the city has has maybe never even got mud in their shoes to sit around a fire and not be fascinated and entertained I guarantee you every single person would be. Yeah, you don't have to do anything. You just sit there and do nothing, more or less. Occasionally prod it with a stare. <laughs> stare it up a bit. Yeah. Joseph, it's been, uh, it's been awesome. Uh, I've, I mean, it's not even over yet for me. I've still got a few days left. Yeah, I've still got a few days. Uh, but so far, to, to, to this point, it has been awesome. Uh, it's added to my, my life experience in a way that I probably didn't anticipate. And, yeah, I've had a thoroughly thoroughly good time and uh, if people want to check out your hunting outfit it's just is it hardyardshunting.com dot code on nz so code at, at nz there you go yep. we'll, we'll stick the uh the link in the description to this podcast and we'll probably have some posts up on the website as well no it's been an absolute pleasure having you here and your cameras weren't too heavy after all we managed we managed <laughs> we, to move we, around we, ma- we managed it we managed it no it's been great and there will be I mean, there's going to be a whole ton of photos um, that we'll stick up online from this trip. I haven't, at the point of recording this podcast, I haven't put that much up on social media. Um, a few things on the Instagram story, but expect when, by the time this goes out, that will probably all all be out. and You'll see pictures, and there is a film going to come out as well. So uh, you'll get to hear more from Joseph and uh, see some of the awesome scenery and experience that we had uh, while well, we've been hunting in the last week, you, you've done a better job of me taking photos anyway on my on my phone. <laughs> I don't know. I think you might have got photo of the trip of the one with the reflection in my lens. No, it's not bad. Yeah, it was a good photo. Little Samsung's, around. little Samsung's not too bad. Well, we better wrap things up. I'm just actually going to look out the window here. Is it? Yeah, it's so freaking foggy. It's not real. Good. Oh man! Oh, actually, look. I can see uh, mountain tops there. Oh yeah. Yeah, it might be breaking up. It's supposed to be clearing up today, but it would be good to see a, a few tops. We've got a bit of filming to do um, today before we uh, before we wrap up and then drive out of here. Film the so, inside of a cloud. Yeah, 
We're going to tidy up a bit, repack our bags, and that'll be it. So, from New Zealand for now, over and out. And that is it for another two weeks. Next time, uh, you are going to hear from Simon Whitehead, yes, the main ferreting man of the UK. He has just launched a, a new book with Scott Ree, who was a, a previous podcast guest called Ahead of the Game. You're going to hear about that book and also his kind of backstory, it, life it's story. A, it's a very good show, and uh, we've been wanting to bring some more stuff from the UK for a while, and I think this is a good way to, perfect kick, opportunity, yeah. to, to kick off getting more people from the UK and finding out about uh, I mean, Simon's dying trade, I guess. It's amazing. It's fascinating. I mean, um, whenever I see him at the shows, I'm always looking at the ferrets, and he had them He had them here when we were recording the podcast. They're amazing creatures. He's been up in Scotland doing demos uh, at the Highland Show, which I saw him at last weekend, and then he's kind of been actually staying in our neck of the, neck of the woods in the, the few days between that show and Schoon Palace this weekend. Um, so... Here's a chance to get a little bit ahead of the game. Go and check out uh, Simon Whitehead, Pakefield Ferrets. He's very, very active on Twitter, so you can go and give him a follow on Twitter and check out his book, Ahead of the Game. De- definitely. Go and look at the book because, we, we, in fact, this is giving you a heads up before the show's out in two weeks' time. Yeah. They're already sold half o- over half of their thing, and they don't know the next time they'll do another run. So if you want to get your hands on the book, do it sooner then you later. need to do it sooner rather than later. So that is what's coming up. Um, I don't think we've got anything else to say apart from going into the competitions that we mentioned at the start, which was to win a Hornady full-length reloading die. Check out the social medias or just I've, simply ping us an email. I've just remembered something oh, that's quite important that you should have mentioned at the start. At the start. We are currently giving away two signed copies of Modern Huntsman. Oh, that's been running on Instagram, isn't it? This is why you have to listen to the end of the show. (laughs) So all the people that may have turned off before the end of the show, you're now at an advantage here. It's going to be running for, I think, just over two weeks looking at the calendar now because the podcast is going out straight away. Um, And it is only on Instagram. Sorry if you're not an Instagram user, but just get on Instagram. You don't even need to post anything on Instagram. And if you don't use it, get somebody to get a friend who Um, uses it. There is a post up, and it's a picture of Byron and Floki, uh, the Cocker Spaniel, not a person, uh, reading Modern Huntsman, uh, and it's on the... T- I don't, well, just look for it. You'll find it. We'll, we'll pe- it's near the top. It's near the top. We'll keep putting up Instagram stories directing you to it. And all you have to do is to tag a friend in it who you want to share your winnings with. And you... And the friend will win the signed copy, and it doesn't matter where you are in the world. You can you can enter this. It's going to be completely random, and it's going to be sent out straight from the guys in, um, at Modern Huntsman from the states. So we're not even having anything to do with the, the sending out. Yeah, we're going to give the name straight to them, and they will get them signed, and any messages that you want in there, and get them out to you. So yeah, that's that's super cool. I mean, I wish I could enter the competition because I don't even have a copy of Modern Huntsman. <laughs> no, neither of us do. But Tyler is going to be back. Um, uh, I, he tells me in the fall this year. But Byron had a copy of Modern Huntsman in his house, and then we were selling out so fast, and we had so many orders we had to send out that he had to take his copy back from the house that was pristine <laughs> and sell it. So we were actually giving away our copies now that to, to everyone. Just supply and demand, isn't it? Uh, so that's it, I think. Yep. We're done. I think I think we are done. Uh, d- definitely subscribe to the show. 
if you're on iTunes, it's important. Hit that subscribe helps button. Helps us a lot. Uh, helps us a lot. And give us a review. Yeah, give us a review. And also, it means that when a show comes out, it comes up straight away. Just download it. Done, dusted, and uh, you get us in your ears for a few hours of your journey. Thank you very much. 